0: The story is you and your friends went out at night on your bikes to visit your dying mother, and then another bunch of other biker hooligans called the clowns attacked you.
2: They hurt your friend, you lost your temper, and that's why eight of these clowns are all now in the hospital.
1: And that is the truth. Huh? Uh- <laughs> <laughs>
3: He's really hurt bad.
1: Who are those kids?
3: They seem to be an ordinary bike gang, sir. Tetsuo! Hey, wait! You can't take him away like.
0: It was a dream that I saw. You mustn't let that boy go. The city will crumble. So many people, so many will die. We get to meet
3: Akira again.
0: Akira? When will it happen? Kaneda, we're not back in school anymore.
2: Now you're king of the mountain, aren't you? But it's all garbage.
0: Neo Tokyo is going to change soon. We aren't the ones who will change us. Wait
3: for the wind, called Akira. You've got to return to the laboratory. Listen to me! Ah, in my brain! What did you do? That which is called science reverses! poverty. That which is called civilization devastates the spirit of man. You changed my friend, didn't you?
0: Your friend has made his choice. We have every indication that Akira is about to manifest itself. The moment of Lord Akira's
1: awakening is drawing closer. The time of atonement is upon us.
3: Are your hearts prepared? The time is nigh!
2: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is El Goro. Tetsuo!
1: Hey, Mike. How's it going?
2: Also back with us in the booth is Mr. Chris Cummins. Hey, everybody. I was hoping you'd do Kanda. <laughs> 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 this week, we are discussing Katsuhiro Otomo's Akira. Based on the manga by the same name, which was also written and drawn by, I'm not sure, uh, but definitely written by Katsuro Otomo and released two years before the end of the comic series, the film tells the tale of Kaneda, a teenage punk and a motorcycle gang, and Kei, a member of an underground resistance, and their adventures in Neo-Tokyo. They enter into a world of psychics, including the titular Akira! Sorry, I'll stop doing that now.
1: It's a very (laughs) shouty movie. (laughs) It's only appropriate.
2: (laughs) I'll probably, by the way, I'll probably slip and say Akira all the time rather than Akira! So...
1: That's all right. I, I will oscillate back and forth because there is no consistency to me.
2: So Akira, the little boy with incredible powers that lead to the devastating explosion that opens the film. We're going to be getting into spoilers for both the book and the movie versions of Akira on this episode. So if you don't want anything ruined, Please turn off this podcast and come back. We will be here, frozen under the Olympic Stadium. Chris, when was the first time you saw Akira, and what did you think?
4: The first time I saw Akira was at a comic convention. Actually, uh, someone I was I was kind of familiar with the uh, with the comic a little bit just by reputation, uh, and I was at you know one of the one of the old uh, comic conventions here in Philly. And, uh, you know, Table had a video monitor set up, and I was like, what, what, is, what is this craziness here? And uh, they were like, this is, this is uh, Akira. And, you know, they, they explained a little bit about it, and they only had the Japanese uh, version of it, but the animation was so striking that I bought a copy there. So I think the statute of limitations is well over for the bootleg at this point. But, uh, yeah, so they had that there, and they were selling it, and I took it home. Uh, and I watched it and a friend of mine who was super into uh into the uh Akira at that point was just just lost his damn mind because he didn't realize that there was a movie. Uh so we watched it in Japanese and I didn't really I had no idea what the hell was going on, but I was interested enough that, you know, I got into the the comics that I think Marvel's epic brand was putting out at that point. Uh and then, you know, I became obsessed and then I guess it was Whenever uh, Streamline released the original, not the original, the English uh, dub of it is when I, when I, you know, could truly uh, understand what was going on, because for some reason this area got the the English dub before we got the subtitle one. So yeah, so that was my uh, my first experience, and it was it was it was love at first sight. I mean, it still is unlike any other uh, animated thing I've seen before or since. I just I just love the look of it so much, and I think it really really holds
2: up tremendously. And I don't I don't really feel it's even aged at all. I'm curious, as you're rewatching it for the show, which hopefully you rewatch it for the show, are you watching the subtitled or dubbed version?
4: I watched the dub version today just because uh, I realized that I had never, I had only ever watched the original dub and not the uh, 2002 dub version, which people seem to hate. So I kind of wanted to see what th- that was all about. Usually, when I watch it, I do tend to watch the uh, the subtitle version, though.
1: And El Goro, how about yourself? I came into it when I was in high school. Uh, when I was coming up in high school, my friends and I used to all get together and uh, get sugared up because it was before we c- could get liquored up, and we'd spend in all night just getting together watching movies. And somewhere in the rotation, Akira came up. And it was one that I was more, kind of familiar with prior to that, having seen advertisements or maybe seen a VHS cover. But I remember vaguely seeing it at about 2.30 in the morning, just kind of bombed out of my mind, not understanding anything that's going on, vaguely recognizing Cam Clark as the voice of Kaneda, because he voiced uh, Leonardo on the (laughs) Ninja Turtles. and um, But despite that less than ideal situation, there was something about the movie that completely resonated with me. It was one that I had a buddy of mine run me off a VHS copy of, and would just wear that tape down, kind to watch it. And I think the big draw for me, other than the absolutely beautiful animation, was the... The confusing nature of the plot, that there were so many th- details in there that I felt like I just wasn't getting and I wanted to try to parse it out. There was something compelling about the movie, but for whatever reason, I just wasn't understanding it. Later on, when that uh, Animaze version came out, which was 2001, 2002, as we said, I ended up picking up the DVD of it with that newer dub. And I don't know why uh, people detract that dub. I think it was a big step up from the 89 one. I've been loving this movie ever since I was in high school, ever since um, I first saw it. And I still hold it up as one of the premier animated films ever of any decade and how about you when you're re-watching it for the show you're watching the subtitled or dubbed this one i went back and watched the 2001 dub on it um i don't know why i, I enjoyed the japanese version um i have a little bit of nostalgia for the terrible 1989 dub but uh, for whatever reason i think it may just be, be because the disc defaulted to this particular dub that i sat down and watched that version
2: This was a first-time viewing for me. I tried watching this, wow, probably back in the early 90s. There was a screening at the Michigan Theater in Ann Arbor, which is one of these great movie palace venues. And for whatever reason, I didn't go see it there. I really wanted to, but something happened or whatever. I can't even remember what the circumstances were, and I missed seeing it and i kind of wonder had my life gone a different way what would what, what would <laughs> would my life have changed had i seen this film in the early 90s because it is remarkable uh, but uh, it's also kind of remarkable to me that i really have not been exposed to anime very much at all i remember i saw like grave of the fireflies when that was making festival rounds and that's about it like I remember a couple animated shows when I was a kid, like Kimba the White Lion and Battle Beyond the Planets and some of these things.
3: Battle of the Planets G-Force
1: Five incredible young people with superpowers And watching over them from Center Neptune sevens are Seven Zark-Seven Watching, warning against surprise attack by alien galaxies from beyond space.
2: But yeah, never really got into the anime scene. So I I figured we got a request a long time ago. Hey, why don't you do some animated movies on the show? And I said, well, why don't I do the animated movie and do Akira? Because I'd been hearing about this movie for so long. So I'm using this episode as an excuse for me to finally watch this. Now, I'm going to be talking later on in the episode to Jonathan Clements, who wrote the book of anime, the anime encyclopedia, as well as a ton of other things. And now that's going to be getting into a lot of what some people might think are remedial discussions of anime, just because I don't know anything about anime, and I'm coming to this as a complete noob. So I have to say, Elguro, I was very happy to hear you say that you had a hard time understanding all the nuances of the film, because I've watched it probably four or five times now and i even read the the book the well the six books of manga that this is based on that was a bad idea. I just want to put that out there, that it was a bad idea to to see the movie, read the book, see the movie again, and you know having a couple screenings on the other side because now I'm even more confused as to what was actually in the movie and what am I remembering from the book.
1: Yeah, it gets a little weird because as you mentioned that the movie was made a, a full two years before Otomo finished his manga and you can see him planting the seeds of where he would go with the manga into the film, so he had a sense of where he kind of wanted to take his manga series, but it is interesting just how much of a distillation of the plot the, the film actually is, because the manga, as you mentioned, it's this huge six-volume, massive uh, work that goes into great detail of a lot of characters that are afforded very little screen time in the actual film. It was remarkable when I I uh, got around to reading the manga because I was such a fan of the film and all of a sudden realized, it's like, wait a minute, this one lady who appeared in uh, quick flashes in like two scenes, she actually is a huge character throughout all the manga, <laughs> you know? Lady Miyago? Exactly.
2: Yeah, who who's voiced by a man in <laughs> some of the versions of it? It's awesome. Who is this little man and why is his hair so weird?
1: Well, it's interesting though that you said that um, you're not terribly into anime, and that you decided to kind of kick it in with Akira, because I I uh, hold Akira as the thing that kind of made me an anime fan in high school. That for us, when we were coming up, well, I know I'm younger than you, Mike. I'm not sure uh, where you're at, Chris. But, I'm 42. Okay, well, I'm 32. So we got a we got a decade separating us. And when I was in high school anime was certainly more available than it was for generations previous. You could actually buy legitimate ones who weren't so reliant upon the bootleg market, but it wasn't uh, released with the or out there with the same kind of ubiquity that it exists now. So you actively had to go do some hunting, it just there was actually things to hunt up and, and legitimately buy. And during those explorations, the big three for my group was Akira, Ghost in the Shell, and Ninja Scroll. We would watch so many other things, but it was those Three we, that we just kept going back to. And of those three, A Cure was always my top.
2: Was this your gateway drug, Chris? to anime?
4: It absolutely was. Uh, growing up, I the only other uh, exposure to anything anime uh, that I had had was uh, Star Blazers, which was just this great uh, science fiction show cartoon that was based on the whole uh, Yamato saga from Japan, and that showed uh, every morning, like with like Transformers, you know. So that was um that was that was kind of it, and then uh you know. Akira had such a such a great reputation and everyone rightfully calls it the gateway drug to to anime because it was for so many people. And I think I think what's really interesting about Akira as well is it came out, you know, in that late 80s uh, period and really started picking up steam by late 91, 92 uh, to the point where it became one of the last movies that was really uh, tape traded and word of mouth spread like this, like like all great cult movies but i i can't think of another movie that so many different groups of people in my life who usually weren't into this sort of stuff were just blown away by uh by by akira i'd always been kind of i'd always gravitated towards like cult movies and things like that but this is a movie because its look is so singular and i i really think it appeals to people from all different backgrounds who who were even just like novice you know film fans but it did become like a social event like uh like Toro was talking about like when you would um when you would have a movie night with your friends Akira was one of those movies that would kind of wind up in the pile alongside like Monty Python or Rocky Horror it would just be it would it would become more of an event because it was so unlike anything that you'd seen or you were familiar with. So I think that, um, I, along with, you know, the huge impact it had on anime as a genre, it also kind of gets, it also kind of gets lost in the discussion of cult films because this movie, I know in my life personally, was one of the biggest word of mouth movies amongst my circle and people that I knew.
2: How Weirded out was I after seeing this poster, because this poster image of Kaneda walking towards his motorcycle with the big, you know, Akira title, that has just become everything. You you see that every place. And how strange was it for me to be watching this movie and just being like, why are they calling Akira Kaneda? <laughs> because obviously this guy's name is Akira because it's on the poster and it's the dude walking towards the motor. This is, this is Akira, right? So it took me the longest time for me to realize that Akira was a different character than this guy because I was just so used to that poster image. And then as I'm watching, I'm just like – so akira when is akira showing up and they keep talking about him it was kind of like the beginning of othello or something where it's just like yeah we're talking about akira he's oh yeah akira 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 and i'm just like well he's not here yet when is this guy going to come in is this like kaiser Sose? What's, what's happening here and when he finally shows up and he's a bunch of jars with pieces in him, i was like
1: oh it's it's such a curious decision. One of the things that blew me away so much when I would read the manga, is like, wow, Akira is actually a real character in this,
2: and he, he's so talkative. Yeah, yeah, I love the way that we begin. We it kind of it reminds me of that line from Ed Wood, but the opposite of it. We begin with a huge explosion. <laughs> yep, and. It is the beginning of World War III. We have this explosion in Tokyo. And you can't have an explosion in Tokyo without talking about the H-bomb. So we're definitely going to be talking about atomic warfare as we go throughout this episode and throughout the, the story of Akita. Yeah. And then we join up with the with the world again in 2019, same year as Blade Runner uh, is set in. And we have the story of Tetsu and Kaneda. And that was our main story for a lot of this movie and i was very surprised that it was this kind of like friendship/rivalry because it you can tell that things aren't necessarily 100% between them and canada i thought he was going to be like seeing again going back to that poster having that as my only point of reference him looking way too cool for school, walking up to that bike, and that bike is fucking awesome. This motorcycle that just, you know, it, it flies through the streets of Tokyo, not literally, but practically. And I was just like, oh, wow, Kaneda, he's going to be really super cool. But no, he's kind of a dork. Uh, he's kind of a dork yeah, and he's kind of a dick.
1: In many ways, I liken him to a Jack Burton type character insofar that he's positioned as the protagonist, yet he is completely ineffectual at in most of the stuff he does.
2: And whenever he's around Kay, this female character who enters into the fray at one
1: point, he just turns into a total goofball. Yep. Total teenage horn dog character. But it makes sense because, you know. In plenty of times throughout anime and also in uh, Western storytelling traditions, when you have teenage protagonists, they sometimes fall into the trap of they're only only ostensibly teenagers, but they're essentially responding to the world and acting like adults because they're written by adults. Whereas this, it actually feels like he's a teenager because if you ever met a 16-year-old kid, I know at 16, I knew nothing. I was a moron. And if you would put me into this sort of situation, I definitely wouldn't have done as well. As Canada uh, did,
4: there's a bit of it that kind of feels genuine because, like, uh, after after you know, K, K kills the uh, kills the police guy in the sewer. is <laughs> still trying to get laid, so there's right. still kind of there's there's kind of like a real uh, off kind of off kilter genuineness about how how he's portrayed as a teenager. That's kind of right. He's like, just like, oh no, you, just forget about that. Let's go get some drinks. Like, you know, I I I think I've, I've I've heard many of my friends when I was a teen trying to get laid using those similar <laughs> kinds of lines and it, uh you know, it's not the most noble of uh, of characters. But, yeah, it, it kind of plays into the, the whole like how he is kind of an ass and it, it plays into the big brother, little brother sort of relationship that he has with Tetsuo. That's kind of the uh, emotional core of the movie.
2: And Tetsuo, he's very fragile. And so it is very bad that he ends up getting these psychic powers that rival, if not top, the power of Akira. And we only know, as I said, we only hear about Akira as we're watching this movie. And it's just like uh, fairly quickly as we go through here, we figure out that Akira is the source of that explosion that we saw at the beginning. And we're not really sure what happened after that. And so the movie they set up it they set up so many things. There are so many threads going through here. And one of those threads is this mystery as far as what happened at the beginning. What what happened at that moment. And it's kinda nice we never get a flashback to that, which is is really cool. I like that it's just like we hear about it and we kind of have to figure it out from inferring things but we never actually see that moment and then we get another mystery put into it fairly quickly because we have this whole idea of this guy running through the streets with this little kid and then when we get a look at the little kid he's just this little like kind of like green-skinned old man looking guy and you're just like what is this an old man is this a kid he's got this jacket that kind of reminds me of like robins out from from batman and the The guy who is holding his hand and dragging him through the streets is bleeding, and he's on the run from the cops. So we've got all of these things just immediately showing up, and then eventually we get Kay in the mix. And it's one of those movies – I mean, I highly recommend if if you haven't seen Akira, you're going to have to watch this movie several times because there's a lot of characters where you're just like, oh, I didn't realize that character was there in this moment – Because there's a lot of blink and you miss it. This movie is so thick and so heavy with so many different characters and just so much action happening all at the same time.
5: I've
4: seen this movie a good 10, 15 times. And uh, today, uh, I I wanted to rewatch it today. And uh, I, I on the the DVD that uh, Pioneer put out in 2001, uh, and I'm sure this is probably on the Blu-ray as well. There's a uh, an option called the capsule option, where whenever there's text that's in Japanese on the screen, you highlight this capsule will come up and highlight, and you hit that, and it'll translate it for you. And uh, I that gave me some insight into certain you know certain things because certain signs that were featured will say like this is the uh, this is the zone of the city where the original Akira thing happened. Thirty years ago, or or it'll just give you like little insights into like the political climate of it, uh, like the protesters who are uh, worshiping Akira as a god. There's a lot of stuff in there about like labor strikes, and these are just little like throwaway things that kind of tell you they, they give you some context about the world of Akira, and that's something that like I kind of overlooked uh, a few times before when I've when I've seen the film. So this movie is a movie that definitely like I think I think anyone uh, who watches this movie for the first time and says they completely get it is either lying or the director because i think i think that's like the only way you can really take in the depth of this movie the first time around this is a movie that absolutely rewards repeat viewings and you can kind of get the nuance of everything that's going on along with the foreshadowing and things because it's like there's there's so many like kind of head scratching sequences that are almost like lynchian especially like uh when uh when Tetsuo is, is in the hospital and you're wondering if he's hallucinating and then it just turns out that, no, it's these kids who are screwing with him, who are the other experiment kids. So, you know, there, there's so much happening that you're, you're going to want to see this movie a few times. And if you've never seen this before and if you're listening to this episode, just know when you go into it that, yeah, there's going to be some things that you're going to want to think about and you're going to want to watch this movie a good two to three times before you really get a grasp on exactly what's going on.
2: I feel like we're almost back to discussing On the Silver Globe. You know, it, it isn't necessarily as confusing as On the Silver Globe, and it's definitely a little bit more straightforward as the narrative goes. But, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in here, because even today when I was watching it, I was just like, well, Canada's just – hearing about Akira for the first time and people are kind of shocked when he mentions Akira's name. And when Akira's name comes up, like people, you know, especially the, the psychic kids, the experiment kids that you mentioned, they're just like, Oh, you know, the, like we don't talk about Akira or whatever. And then later on, there are some adults who are talking about Akira and I'm like, what, what? And I'm like, Oh yeah, that's right. There's the cult of people who worship Akira. Okay. But yeah, it's, it always kind of takes me back because i'm just like wait now what about this oh okay now i get it and yeah i'm glad they have that capsule option because it's funny how Kaneda's jacket has this big capsule on the back of it and then tetsuo ends up becoming this well for lack of a better term drug addict uh to try to suppress his powers a little bit so especially suppress his um his headaches that he constantly has drugs play a, a big part in this maybe not as much in the movie as it does in the book but there's definitely a lot of drugs going on because at one point Tetsuo ends up creating a an empire crime empire i think he kind of takes over the jokers these this motorcycle gang that we see at the beginning and has them out hoisting all these drugs just so he can fuel his habit just to keep his headaches in check.
1: The idea of that uh, simultaneous youth culture that's also (laughs) wrapped up with that drug culture there. And I I love the implication of it. The fact that you have this uh, motorcycle gang that idolizes the pill. So it's the idea that they're getting so amped up on drugs and just barreling down the streets at a thousand miles per hour. And it was a great decision to sort of make the first major set piece of the film that motorcycle chase because it is such a beautiful portrayal of the animation and the incredible amount of detail that went into this film. And it's amazing that a film made in 1988 can still put so many other animated films absolutely to shame just with how well it presents its world.
4: I'm glad you brought up that sequence because that, that sequence is, is so visceral and the, uh, the music of this movie Needs to be discussed too, I think, because, I mean, that, that whole, uh, basically, the, that whole opening, uh, bike chase sequence is basically the, the music is kind of subtly just saying, like, the characters' names and to this, like, driving beat that kind of accompanies the scene. It sets up so much for what's going on. First off, it establishes Neo-Tokyo and exactly what that city is like, in the same way, like, the early, you know, the, obviously there's a big Blade Runner influence on the look of this movie, and the fact that they both take place in 2019 is definitely not a coincidence. But um, there, there's a lot of stuff that that's going on in this movie, too. Uh, like I was talking about earlier, like, you have the looming Olympics happening in Neo-Tokyo, and the colonel is just driven to he's driven by his own sort of personal sense of honor and uh, he's a really complicated character so like all this all this stuff is going down that's kind of info dumped at you in the first 15 minutes but there are few sequences in animated films that are as exciting to watch uh, as that first bike sequence. It's just great because you don't really know exactly what's going on, who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. And, you know, that's deliberately, uh, you know, ambiguous. The argument can be made that, you know, both the clowns and uh, Canada's gang are are terrible people, but there's just a lot of, a lot of excitement in that sequence that kind of really gets you fueled up for
2: the rest of the film. Speaking of, of getting characters and info dump, even to this day, I have a hard time, distinguishing ryu who is k's is that her brother or is it her i think it's husband?
1: her i think it's her ostensibly her love interest okay so it may not be completely uh, reciprocated though then again he did say her name when he was dying so who can say ryu
2: looks so much like the colonel to me <laughs> so often and and especially like if ryu's wearing a hat because the colonel his distinguishing feature is this crazy haircut that he has where he's got just like a, uh, it's almost like a shaved down mohawk. So he's got the shi- sides are shaved and he's got this strip of hair on the top and it's really short. But as far as the facial features and the mustache and everything, I was just like, now, who am I looking at here? <laughs> so, But so many of the other characters are very distinct. Like you could, I could never mistake Tetsuo from Kaneda, but there are times where I might mistake Kaneda and K because K is very androgynous
1: sure and it's one thing that i actually really enjoy about the animation style is that they avoid a trope that you'll find in anime with the wild uh, hair colors which yes. is with some which is has its purpose especially during in the more simplistically animated ones of uh being a very easy visual shorthand to differentiate characters so you'll have somebody with blue hair and that'll be defining characteristic they avoided that everybody looks Real and they most importantly, all they all look Japanese. There's very few Anglo feature characters in this entire film, there's some exaggerated characters because, um. Oh, what was his name? It was it was it Nezu, the who uh, yes. har- <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> looks like a little mole person. But that sort of exaggeration aside, everybody, the designs of the characters are remarkably grounded, and it shows again the detail that went into the animation. That without relying upon those tropes and those sort of visual shortcuts, that they were still able to mostly differentiate differentiate the characters, with the ex- with the possible exception of Ryu and the uh, uh, Colonel.
2: I mentioned the one psychic kid that shows up, the old man looking kid. I think that's, is that Kyoko or Takashi?
1: Uh, I think it was Tadashi
2: he's there and then at one point Masaru shows up and Masaru is, has this amazing look to him cuz he's uh, one of these again like little kids who looks older than he is and he almost always wears a suit and he doesn't really walk very well so he's got this like hovering electric uh wheelchair kind of thing and when he comes out of this helicopter at the beginning I was thinking he was going to be our main antagonist through the rest of this film, because I was just like, oh, this is Miguelito Loveless or something. This is <laughs> going to be fantastic. and But no, he's just one of these three psychic kids. And the scenes with the psychic kids, I love those characters. They are just amazing. And then really, they kind of are our through line through so much of this as far as them their history and their because they're kind of that linchpin between the old world the 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 Pre Akira explosion because he was one of their friends, and then into the story that we have now. That we don't get a whole lot of characters that have experienced this whole thing. Like it seems like the Colonel was brought in later. Maybe Lady Miyaku was part of all this thing too. She was actually there before uh, the what they call in the book the twenty series. Uh, she was number nineteen, and then the rest of these kids were all in the twenty series, and then. Tetsuo is actually number 41. They don't talk about the 30 series at all. I'm sure that somebody came up with some fan fiction of what the 30 series was up to. But anyway, they really are what connects us from that Akira world to the present world. And so they're a lot of fun to watch for me, just how they interact with these people. And they're, you know, kind of trying to bring Tetsu into this group because he is also a kid with powers. But. He's just way too much for them. And because he's kind of carrying this chip on his shoulder as far as always being the second banana to Canada. He really goes off the deep end pretty quickly.
1: Oh, definitely, and I love the what they represent because you know in many ways they are some of the most powerful and the most knowledgeable characters. And while we know that based upon the timeline that they are legitimately old, so that they've definitely aged past the point of being children, you know their their wizened features aside, because they were around in eighty eight when Akira went up, but they still are presented throughout the entire thing as Children, very knowledgeable, very powerful, but they still essentially uh, retain the perspective of childhood. And it represents one of those core conflicts that arises throughout this entire movie, if you wanted to break it down thematically. And that being, you know, the people fighting for the soul of the city and how it can largely break down between the youth that grew up knowing nothing else and the adults that essentially want to tear everything down and change it in one way or the other. The Colonel wants to reestablish, you know, the, the honor of the city nezu and the um revolutionaries they want to get rid of the decadence of the city the other the other politicians which are hit briefly they want to try to transform it through uh, uh, going through the olympic stadium but they can't agree (sighs) with things meanwhile you have these kids that are existing within the city and they're constantly at war with each other and the adults but at the end of the day they ultimately are the true inheritors of this neo tokyo
2: yeah, and if we are to kind of recast this whole discussion and talk about people who lived through the war years, people who lived through the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki versus the people who grew up in the post war years, and then the people who were the generation when this uh, manga came out in the first place, I mean, that, you know, th- this opens up a whole discussion as to. How these events can echo what had happened in Japan and just the way that, you know, the people wanting power now and people trying to expand out into the rest of the world. I mean, and things, especially this whole idea of growing up too quickly, you know, especially uh, Tetsuo getting too much power too quickly and becoming mad with power. I mean, some people say that that's kind of a metaphor for the, um, the way that Japan, quote-unquote, bounced back after the war and quickly became a major leader in the world. So there's a lot of stuff going on here, and th- this political angle just r- helps make this movie I – I don't say muddled because that's not necessarily the right word – much more complicated and much more of an interesting read.
1: Oh, definitely. And it's it's interesting that, you know, when you when you look at the military perspective of this, because, again, you have the colonel that is essentially trying to, to, especially towards the end, establish martial law. And it's it's throughout the movie. He talks about, you know, reestablishing Tokyo or reestablishing Japan. And it's interesting because. This You will see throughout anim- anime and even manga during this period that this seemed to be a reoccurring theme that pops up. Mamoru Oshii, who directed Ghost in the Shell, during this time in the 80s, he was working on his Kerberos uh, uh, saga, which very much dealt with themes of military takeover and the engaging with the post-war anxiety or the post-World War Japan where they were not allowed to have a a standing military force. And then even with his Patliver films when he was uh, critiquing the use of the Japanese self-defense force in missions abroad. So there is this interesting conversation in the 1980s that seems to arise up within Japanese art discussing the role of the military because it seemed enough time had passed that the memories of the war and the reasons they weren't allowed to have a military had kind of faded from the cultural memory, and then you had people that were legitimately thinking they should take a greater uh, s- greater stance in world affairs, at least militarily, perhaps to balance out their economic do- dominance that they were experiencing in the 80s. I,
4: I don't know if um, anyone out here who's seen the movie and hasn't read the, uh, the manga, I, I kind of recommend doing one and then taking a break for like a month or so, and then doing the other, because... Although they complement each other, they, they, both stories go in such completely different places that, uh, you know, like, like you were talking about earlier, there are characters who are in this movie for... For maybe a minute of screen time, who are major, major characters. I mean, the the manga is a uh, is like two thousand pages over six volumes, and this movie is like two hours. So there's so much going on in each version of of the work. Both are fantastic. I couldn't pick. A, that's like a Sophie's choice if I had to pick the movie over the. The manga i might maybe go for the movie but there's just a lot happening in each iteration of this story that if you watch
1: the movie give yourself a break and then seek out the comics well one thing i discovered recently that i had never known was uh when otomo was talking about his difficulties wrapping up the manga finding an ending for it and you know by the time he had made the film he kind of had a sense of where things were going though they don't exactly end the same way they are comparable to each other And out of all people, he reached out and got advice from Alejandro Jodorowsky. So knowing that and then thinking back to the ending of the film and the manga, that is totally a Jodorowsky ending
2: folks who only know hodo from his movie work which i hope you know hodo from his movie work he, he has been such a amazing uh, comic writer and uh, has been involved in that comic scene for so long people who see Hadarowski's dune will know that he has you know, ties with so many of the French, uh, artists, but he has been working on stories like the ink call and all these different things for years and years. So, uh,
1: he is what an amazing resource to reach out to. So I have a question for you, Mike, since you mentioned that this was the first time you had seen it. Did you run into the issue that I sometimes have whenever I, do, I find a new to me, but otherwise highly, um, influential work that when you're watching that original piece, you're thinking, oh, that reminds me of this thing that came later or that thing that came later. Did you run into that with Akira? Because people have been borrowing tr- uh, aspects of Akira for decades now
2: today's watch, I was seeing a lot of Chronicle, that uh, superhero movie that came out, and the way that the one character, I wish I could remember the actor's name, but he ended up playing that horrible, horrible Green Goblin in those awful, awful, amazing Spider-Man movies. Mm -hmm. Um, He uh, gets all this power and basically becomes evil, and his buddies who have similar powers, they don't necessarily, and there's this whole battle between them, but that was really on my mind today of course the matrix there was a lot of the matrix that i was seeing especially at one point when tetsuo was kind of flying out of this building and he was like what i can fly and i was like oh yeah this totally reminds me of like maybe the first time neo tried to fly or like especially the end of the matrix when he flies off and i'm just like oh shit man this is you know all bets are off the sequels for these matrix movies are going to be incredible luckily i wasn't sitting there going oh yeah that's from this and this is from this so i was able to kind of divorce myself from a lot of that at least the first time that i watched it and then as i have watched it at subsequent times i am seeing more of its influence on other things
1: one movie I watched recently for my show was uh, Looper, and then digging into that, finding out that Ryan Johnson was inspired by uh, one of the – well, one of the many things that went into uh, Looper was uh, was Akira. And it seems to be anytime you have a um, crazy psychic kid, you can't escape the Akira connection.
2: Right. Going back to what we were saying as far as the movie coming out midstream and having – The same person who's working on the comic, working on the movie, and then finishing up the comic, I'm trying to think of any other scenarios where something like that might have happened, because it is such a rarity to have someone who writes a book or writes a comic or any of these things adapt their own work. I know that there have definitely been cases of people adapting their own work, directing their own work which again is a little you know the rare but then that the work is not done i mean that, that's just the most amazing thing to me that this is happening midway through so we have a condensation of so many of the things that have already been part of the established manga that is out there and then taking the story into a different realm than the movie had so there are scenes and images that are side-by-side comparisons between the book and the movie and then it reaches a point where the streams kind of go off but yet at the same time the streams weren't necessarily running at the same pace as we go through because just because of the way that books play versus, or comic books in this case, versus film. So you start dropping characters, you start condensing things, you make these different choices. It's just, I've never run across something like this where you have an artist who is able to do their own work as a movie, while they're working on this larger piece, and then continue the larger piece until completion.
1: I think the only other example that might jump out, but it's not an exact example, but uh, Game of Thrones, because George R. R. Martin had a very was consulted very closely with the adaptation of the television show. But as of yet, it's un- it's an unfinished work. He hasn't finished writing the books yet. Yet the TV show has now passed the point where he has written. So it'll be interesting to see when the books come out, if he decides to take it another way.
2: It was always strange to me, too, that The Lost World by Michael Crichton was, in essence, a sequel to the movie Jurassic Park and not his own book Jurassic Park.
1: Oh, yeah. And uh, you ran into something similar with I Forget the Author. But the person who originally wrote uh, who censored Roger Rabbit, he he wrote a sequel to it uh, of who plugged Roger Rabbit, which was essentially a book sequel to the film instead of a follow up to his book.
4: The closest example I can think of, and this isn't really relevant to this discussion, is uh, what Steven Jouboski wrote, Perks being the Wallflower. Then he wrote the screenplay for it. Then he directed the movie. But I can't think of. I can't think of anything where, uh, I, I mean, Game of Thrones is the perfect example already. Um, yeah, I, I can't think of anything where an artist was involved with something, did the movie, and then went and finished like the comic. I mean, I guess Walking Dead is another
1: contemporary example because Robert Kirkman just announced he's going to finish the comic. And it's that it's that interesting world um of anime and manga, at least in the nineteen eighties, where you could have artists transition between the mediums. I mean, because we had Atomo who did it. Again, we had Oshi who was able to do it with several of his works, particularly his creative creator owned material that like Patlabor and uh the Keribus stuff. It's it felt like it feels like the um The lines that sometimes arise in Hollywood, which says, well, you can't direct this, you're a writer, get out of here. They don't seem to exist as much, um, at least in the anime world.
2: Well, in that artist's eye that he has really comes through because you guys mentioned before, and I'll just echo it, how gorgeous this movie looks and just some of the real – directorly choices that he makes especially as far as like things that are in focus or things that aren't in focus having many many layers to this animation having items that are in the foreground that are out of focus have our characters in the midground who are in sharp clear focus having objects in the background again that are out of focus just so many of these things maybe rack focuses and some of this stuff and then again going back to that bike scene the way that the lights trail after the bikes as they're going along, just amazing. And then, yeah, to use that particular music score because obviously this guy's an artist and a, and a writer. And you know, who's to say that he has great taste in music? But the score for this thing, fantastic. And that creepy, creepy fucking song that plays when the psychic kids are kind of attacking Tetsuo. Oh man! And then when that music comes back up later on in the movie, it's just like ah, oh. <laughs> it's, it's
1: nightmarish. It's nightmarish. Yeah, the score by uh, Sutomo Ohashi. It is one of my favorite cinematic scores. And that, again, that that opening chase music, which the driving uh, nature of it through the the lyrics, the chanting choral bits, and those big drum bits. I'm incredibly jealous of a buddy of mine who lives in Korea, because uh, he was actually able to see this film in 35 with uh, a live taiko band playing along with it. And you could just imagine what that would sound like.
2: My friend uh, Morris Brzezinski, who uh, uh, does the See Here podcast, he was just telling me that the only time he's seen – akira he saw a live uh, performance of the score with the movie and yeah they had those taiko drums and he was talking about how it just the beats from those just go right into your chest and how it just you know makes you even more a part of the film i can't even imagine i can't imagine again i wish i had seen this in a theater because seeing this on a tv screen just doesn't do it justice i mean it's so gorgeous just on my little crappy tv i can't imagine seeing this on the big screen
4: I oh, yeah. have to get you to Philly. They show it here about three or four times a year as a midnight movie. So oh, like, nice! Yeah,
2: and the colors that this thing has—I mean, the red suit that Canada wears—I mean, that again, it goes back to that freaking poster image. But he looks so cool in that red suit, and just everything just. Pops off of the screen. It's, these are colors like I've never really seen them before.
1: Oh, yeah. And one of the animation things that I find incredibly impressive is something that most people would kind of overlook, especially if they're watching in English. But this one was actually lip-synced because the tradition back before this is and also continuing unto today is that all the animation would be done and then the voice actors would go in and try to fit their dialogue into the uh, lip flaps as i think they call them in the animation whereas with akira they recorded all the dialogue first and then animated to the recorded dialogue which just lends a it's a subtle thing, but once you realize it's there and then you start comparing against a lot of other animation, you realize that not a lot of people were doing that sort of thing because it's incredibly it's incredibly strenuous and difficult to do. It's incredibly difficult.
2: It always reminds me of when I was watching those animated movies when I was a kid or watching those uh, Japanese animated shows. And you would also get those weird extra syllables. The way that people talk in Japanese animation that's dubbed in English, at least if it's not done right, is not like anyone you've ever heard speak before, especially when they do the extra syllables. Be like, look at that car. Mm-hmm. Hello, hello,
0: operator. This is an emergency.
3: Give me the chief of police. What's that? You say the chief of police is busy Can I be disturbed.
1: One of the things I remember uh, digging into the special features, again, returning to the animation, is the the layered approach they had to animation. And they showed an example of this because they showed the pencil drawing animatic of the sequence where you saw Kanada's gang walking down the street so they're all across in the frame and the characters are layered so one person obviously is blocking the other but they actually went through and animated every single character completely doing this walking animation regardless of the fact that some of the characters would be blocked by other characters so they essentially animated stuff that nobody would ever see just so they could be absolutely certain that everybody moved as they should move that is pretty amazing. It's incredible. Yeah they they don't cut corners on this. Not, not on this one.
4: Yeah, I can't think of another animated film that is directed with as much care as, uh, as this. And I, I know that may make me sound like an old man, but I mean, uh, I watched I, I recently uh, rewatched Wally, which again I don't want to compare what Pixar's doing to to this um, because it's 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 such light years apart. Like watching Akira is. It really is a unique viewing experience. Like I can't think of another film that is. I, I used the word visceral earlier, and I, I just, I, I just think it's the most appropriate adjective to use while describing Akira because this is a movie that not only does it stick with you thematically, just to watch it, you are you are left kind of spent when it when it wraps up because it's such an overload.
2: Oh, yeah. And this movie just gets crazier and crazier as we go along. I mean, we start getting into this kind of tetsuo the iron man type territory where we are having our uh tetsuo character changing as he's going through this not just getting more powerful psychically but his body starts to change i mean at one point he gets hit with a a freaking laser and his arm gets burned (laughs) off and then the way that he recreates his arm the way that he starts to reform his body into this kind of Oh, a baby thing that he's doing with all of these veins and arteries just sticking all out all over the place. The way that he he kills his quasi girlfriend Kaori by just squishing her inside of like his folds and stuff. Ugh, it it gets real gnarly real fast.
4: You really start to get into like David Cronenberg uh, body horror real quick in that sequence. And I wonder how much like his stuff was an influence on Otomo while he was making this film.
1: Oh, definitely. Uh, we always refer to it as the, the amoeba baby <laughs>
0: at the end.
1: <laughs> and yeah, that was always the point that um, it, uh, it tended to lose people because they were like, what the hell is going on in this? Why is all of a sudden this happening? And the only thing I could, I could kind of wrap it up in my mind is that he'd essentially grown so powerful that he was beginning to essentially de-evolve up until the point that he essentially became the Big Bang again.
2: There seem to be a lot of big, well, there's the big bang that starts this movie, but yeah, there seem to be a lot of big explosions that are going to be happening or that happen in this film. And to me, it's almost like the star child from 2001 comes to Earth. You know, it's just like this is kind of the dawn of a new era, but it seems like it's the dawn of a new era that can't control itself. That this amoeba baby, as you so aptly put it, is just hanging on by a thread, uh, able to keep itself together, because it feels like at any moment it might just sploosh out into a big mass of guts. Is that like the most beautiful poetry that I've ever given you?
4: Oh man, this cat's really from out of town. Yeah, I, I was eating a sandwich during that sequence, and it's really... It's still so unsettling to watch that, that sequence. The, you know when he when Tetsu is doing his his transforming, and it's, it's a really gross sequence too. And I'm not a squeamish guy at all, but like I'm like I'm just gonna put the sandwich aside for a second until this. It's
2: really grotesque and fantastic. Was it a big meatball sub with a lot of sauce on? Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Back in early 2000s, uh, Todd McFarland, uh, who had, of course, his – he'd made Spawn, and he also had a very successful toy line, that he made a Tetsuo action figure. And it has two arms. One's a cybernetic arm, and the other is a huge, de- deformed, uh, cancer fetus baby arm. Yeah. <laughs> I have it, and it's fantastic.
4: Yeah. It is, isn't it? <laughs> that, was a gr- that was a great line of figures. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and based on the comic, too, not so much the uh, the movie, because yep. you have Akira and his neon throne and everything. Yeah, great stuff.
2: Yeah, and Akira does show up for just a hot second in the movie. I mentioned that his parts have been kind of taken and put into jars it's almost like an egyptian uh you know death ceremony but eventually he kind of reforms but he's really even though he's the title he's not necessarily a character in this film which is really kind of a neat thing to do but albeit very confusing to a noob like me
4: it's it's kind of like tron you go into tron for the first time you assume jeff bridges is going to be tron
2: Wow, that's the most apt thing I've heard in a long time.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I had to contribute something to this show. <laughs> I love it. I love you guys it. are,
2: yeah. No, no, it's a that's a good point. Yeah, when he shows up, and then he's just kind of still translucent. He's not necessarily 100 percent formed, yeah. and he doesn't necessarily do a whole lot of stuff in here. And the, the, really, as we get farther and farther along, it feels like just like how Tetsuo's body is just kind of you yeah. know holding itself together by a thread. It feels like, you know, there are a lot of times where I'm just like, what is happening right now? What is in this is like I kind of want to just start breaking this movie down into smaller and smaller pieces when I watch it and just say, like, okay, now what happens at the very end? Now let's go a little bit back from there, you know, because we have that going to the very, very end of this. It's it's basically it's a pencil test is what they have. And this is kind of this. It's almost. Going back to 2001, it's almost like, you know, Jupiter and beyond the infinite. We almost go into the monolith here because we just have this amazing sequence of these lines and circles coming in and out of each other. And it's like, have we gone to... The next big bang or have we gone inside the atom or where are we at with this? But we are definitely in a new place with with where we have uh, taken this story.
1: Yeah, And I love the fact that the animation is so simple in that final, very final sequence, yet so evocative. And again, it, yeah. it, sh- it just shows this, this entire film just shows the strength of animation, whether at its most detailed form or at its most impressionistic, it still relates a great deal of meaning. And I, I, I love the the inherent simplicity of that final sequence. You know, the idea that creation can start with something just so innocuous. It's a beautiful little uh, sequence. It's
2: remarkable that it fits with all of this, Amazing animation that has come before these many layers, these beautiful colors popping off the screen. A couple computer animated sequences here and there to really bring us a lot of interesting motion as we go through here. And then this pencil test and it works. Didn't expect it to go there, but I'm happy with this.
4: So, Mike, I kind of have a have a question for you. What was it that kind of kept you away from this for so long? Like, was it just something that you always kept meaning to see, or it was just that initial experience you had, or what What was it that kind of... Because to me, I, I just assumed that you'd been a fan of this for, for decades at this point.
2: I wasn't really sure where to start. There's a lot of times where it's like, you know, I want to be a part of this world. Or I want to experience some of this stuff. Like I said, I saw Grave of the Fireflies, and I was really impressed with that, really enjoyed it. I liked... Was it Battle Beyond the Planets or Battle Beyond the Star? Battle Beyond the Planets, right? With the five different characters and they would, you know, it was like every other animated Japanese show. Like eventually their stuff would form together into a giant robot kind of thing, right? I enjoyed that when I was a kid, uh, but I just never really had that entree, the proper introduction to some of this anime stuff. So I was always afraid as far as where to, to jump into and i was always afraid that i was going to pick the wrong thing so i just never took that plunge and then there's also the whole idea of like am i going to appreciate this if i watch it on my television set as opposed to the big screen am i going to like a dubbed version of it or a subtitled version you know i was very specific to ask you guys which version you watch for the show, which version you were used to when you're watching it before, because there's a real debate as far as what is the better way to watch these. Because obviously when you're watching a live action film, As far as I'm concerned, if you're enjoying the dubbed version, just get the fuck out, right? Okay, I'll take back what I just said, because obviously um, Italian films, uh, so many films have been shot with different soundtracks and then relayed in. So you're not, despite whatever Tarantino says, you're not watching the Beyond with the original Italian, quote unquote. Everything is being dubbed over there. But, you know, there's there's limitations as far as, like, I'm not going to watch... Senjuro or the seven samurai a dubbed version of that just fuck off, but when it comes to Animated stuff, it's like well does it make sense to watch this in the original language? Does it make sense to watch something if it has been carefully crafted to have these? English voices will it make it easier for me to understand Mm -hmm. will it be annoying because I know a lot of times you watch uh, Animated films and the voices are just super annoying So, uh, again, I was just not really sure which way to go about this. And for a while, it was really tough to see anime with subtitles. You either watched it, you either raw-dogged it like you did, Chris, or you're watching it without anything, or you're watching a dubbed version that some people might hate and you might not even know the difference. So it's just like, okay, well, I don't know where to go. So I was scared. I will admit, I was petrified.
1: A real man admits his fears.
4: Fortunately, like this this is a movie that I mean, this this is to this day still the, the first movie I watch kind of blind. And I was just so excited by the visuals that I saw at the convention that I just kind of blind bought it. Uh, fun, funnily enough, I think I also bought the Doth Lundgren Punisher at the same convention. But uh, yeah, that not nearly enough staying, staying power on that one. Uh, but uh, th- this one, like the visuals, I mean, got me through it because I had no idea what was going on throughout the whole movie. I mean, this is a movie in English, the first time you watch it, you're not entirely sure what's going on. But the visuals are so strong and the music and everything is still like there's a rhythm to this movie that you can watch it just as kind of uh, just as a visual experience and still get a lot out of it, even without not knowing anything about what's happening in the narrative. And that's another testament to this movie
1: when it comes to digging into anime, because I used to be a big fan and had fallen off in recent years. But I rem- remain... A fan of the anime that was coming out towards the tail end of the 1980s, and a friend of mine, he put it into context that due to the economic boom that Japan was experiencing at the time, they were much there were companies that were much more willing to take risks on strange ideas and strange concepts, and that led to a lot of really interesting. Anime that came after that. Now, when the economic st- uh, position in Japan shifted and kind of took a downturn, they tended towards a lot more formulaic forms of anime and it's that that kind of basic formula stuff the the same whether it be a you know a, a harem show or any so um, a million different magical girl shows they don't have a lot of appeal for me i prefer what was going on in the 1980s where they were still making anime targeted towards kind of niche markets and uh, they did some great stuff during that time but uh, if you're in your explorations, Mike, if you start going into more contemporary stuff, do, do not feel uh, bad if you find yourself not connecting with it that much. It doesn't do a whole heck of a lot for me. But if you limits yourself in your further explorations, at least initially, to the 1980s, there's a lot of gold to be found in that decade.
2: When I'm watching these shows like Battle Beyond the Planets and god i hated kimba and i hated kimba because of the dubbing and just those horrible voices that they're putting in there i for whatever reason never even saw speed racer when it was on um in reruns around detroit i don't know if it wasn't showing when i was a kid or if it was just on a channel i wasn't watching but i just had bad experiences with this stuff looking cheap and so it's like I did not expect something to look as good as Akira because I thought that it was going to be a lot of that—the character is still and the background is moving behind them, kind of thing to show action. You know, just those cost-saving things. And I, I have to recommend—we're uh, going to take a break here in a second and play an interview with Jonathan Clements, the author of the anime uh, anime a history. He does this great talk, and I'll try to find it and put it on the projection-booth.com page, where he talks about how the they used cost-saving measures to make just so many animated TV shows in Japan in the 50s and 60s, 70s, and just the way that you could... You know, it's it's that same thing that we see in Hanna-Barbera cartoons, right? Where it's like repeated backgrounds, the same leg motions that you see over and over again. I mean, anytime that uh, the Scooby gang is running away from a criminal, you always see the same group of them moving and we know that they didn't animate each one of these characters like that opening (laughs) from akira right (laughs) it's just a big massive legs running and a background rotating behind them i mean okay well there's you know half of your show right there right because they're always running away from people but yeah he does this great thing where he explains how to get away with animating very little of a show every single week and he uses uh, a roll of toilet paper in order to explain it so I'll just leave it with that and with that (laughs) I will say we're going to take a break play this interview and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages
0: let me ask you a question are you getting enough I bet you'd love more right well adamneed.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts first you'll get a sexy surprise for her second a specially selected toy for him and third a little something we know you'll both enjoy plus you'll get six full length adult movies on DVD and number 10 free shipping on your entire order so what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts it's not hard Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B. O O T H at com.
1: If you listened to Proudly Resents, the cult movie podcast,
2: you would know how to properly crush a head.
0: But well, let's say you want to crush a head like Toxic Avenger or the famous full head crushing scene. You take a cantaloupe carve out the inside. Then you load what we call loading the cantaloupe. We used to put in hamburger mixed with cranberry sauce, but now because I'm a vegetarian, it's only cranberry and spaghetti and things that are not animal. Then you put a wig on the cantaloupe and paint a little happy face. Bingo.
1: That was Lloyd Kaufman from
3: Troma Films. To hear more interviews and reviews, go to proudlyresents.com or find proudlyresents on iTunes and Stitcher It's not easy having a good time and it's not cheap either Every week the Projection Booth brings you a new show possibly even two focusing on all genres of cinema If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the Projection Booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Projection Booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year, at least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets isn't the projection booth worth it once again that's patreon.com slash projection booth donate today it's the right thing to do
2: what was your first exposure to anime
5: Like many people, my first exposure to anime was secretive, and I was unaware of it. The first anime I ever saw was Marine Boy, which I had no idea was Japanese for about 15 years. But as a child, I watched Marine Boy, I watched Battle of the Planets, and uh, Ulysses 31. And these were some of my favorite cartoons as a child. And then as I got older and drifted into the world of studying Japanese, it turned out they were all made in Japan. And so the first anime I knowingly sat down to watch, I think, was probably Acura because there were very few opportunities. People forget 30 years on that in an age when there's nothing on television, the cinema offers you such a limited choice that there probably weren't that many opportunities to see Japanese animation. Acura was the first anime to be openly advertised in Britain, where I come from, as a work of animation from japan and so acura was the first thing that i bought a ticket for and went to see knowing it was japanese animation everything before then had been sneaked in undercover dubbed into english and when it was released it was on a very limited theatrical run it was only in about 10 screens across the country so i actually had to get on a train and go to bradford to see it and i'm walking down the street in my acura t-shirt completely lost because i've never been there before I'm trying to work out where this little tiny cinema is. And this biker gang starts following me down the street and the kind of engines kind of slowly going, rumbling along. And so I turn a corner and they follow me around the corner. So I turn another corner and they follow me again. And one of the bikes leaps ahead and it screeches to a halt in front of me. And I'm thinking, oh, God, what could happen? And the guy says, can't help but notice your Acura T-shirt. We're going to see the film. Do you know where the cinema is? So that was my first encounter uh, with with anime fans, I suppose, as well. You said that you studied Japanese, and how did that happen? I've never been able to offer a reasonable explanation for that. I fell in love with the Japanese language when I was a teenager, and I decided I was going to study it, and uh, I ended up uh, at the University of Leeds doing Chinese and Japanese uh, for my first degree. And originally, I specialized in uh, East Asian space programs, That was going to be my big thing. But when I came back from the Far East from my time studying abroad to finish my degree in England, uh, the anime boom had started in the English-speaking world. And so just to make some money on the side, I started writing for the anime magazines and very soon drifted into translating Japanese animation and Japanese comics. Um, And so in the course of the 1990s, I ended up translating, I think, about 70 of them. I drifted into dubbing. I did some voice acting um, and uh, eventually started writing books of my own. Um, but, but it all began with with Japanese, and it was a very fortunate accident for me that the big anime boom in the West came around the time I was finishing my studies. Why was there that boom? What caused that? Now you're asking an anime historian question. I hope you have three hours. The big macroeconomic reason for it is very simply um the japanese bubble economy of the 1980s Japan, there was so much money sloshing around in the japanese system in the middle of the 1980s and it had to go somewhere and this created this massive spike in investments in the creative arts including japanese animation so From the mid to the late 80s, let's say from 1984 to 1988, 1989, a dozen of the greatest anime ever made were released. You get a lot of the early period Studio Ghibli. Acura, for example, was released in the same year as My Neighbor Totoro and Grave of the Fireflies. Um, And you get a lot of productions that would never have got away with it um, in previous years. Well, frankly, given too much money. I mean, the interesting thing about Acura, for example, is that the it cost 1.1 1. 1 billion yen. Uh, it stood no chance of making that money back in the domestic market in Japan. No chance at all. So, uh, another example: Wings of Onyamis, um started out as a very small low-budget video production, but all these investors turned up and insisted on investing on it, and the company didn't want to turn away their money, so they ended up having far too much money to spend. And this makes for a fantastic, enduring work of filmic art, but it makes it very difficult to actually monetize it. And so what you get in the 1980s is a number of very high-quality feature films um, made in in japanese animation you also get a market of adult animation fans because the 1980s also saw the advent of the video recorder and so you have anime companies making what would have been tv shows but making them straight to video which gives them more adult content so you have a, a, a not only um, an increased quality of anime of feature animation but you also have a, a rising age of potential audiences so instead of making cartoons just for children you get cartoons made for teenagers. So this creates an interesting new niche, and as I said, despite the fact that there was money sloshing around in the 80s, by the end of the 80s, the bubble economy had burst, Tokyo real estate prices had collapsed, everybody was desperate to unload all this material, the only way films like Acura could make their money back was in foreign sales. And there were two potential routes to take. One of them was the route that Studio Ghibli took, which was to say, we want Disney treatment. We want theatrical releases on hundreds of screens, and we are going to set a price for our product that reflects that. And this is why nobody touched Studio Ghibli for another 10 years. No one could afford to. And that was a very deliberate move by Studio Ghibli because they'd been badly burned over a film called Warriors of the Wind, which was a really hacked up version of Nausicaa. And so in order to kind of hold off poor treatment, they deliberately – I was going to say overcharged, but actually they charged precisely what the market would bear. And eventually, of course, Buena Vista turned up and and bought Ghibli's back catalogue, and uh, and history was made with Princess Mononoke and spirited away. In the case of other films, particularly in the science fiction market, like Acura. Um, they were sold at a reasonable price. And the companies that really made a difference, there are two companies that really made a difference for bringing anime to the West. One of them was an American company called Streamline, uh, run by Jerry Beck and uh, Carl Masek. And the other one was uh, a British company called Manga Entertainment. Streamline Pictures uh, had this uh, very, rather controversial policy of trying to fit their material to the audience that they knew existed. So Carl Masek has a very uh, varying reputation depending on who you ask. Some people say that he killed Japanese animation. Other people say that he made it what it was by creating a market for it. Um, he picked up Acura and a number of other titles and released them in America. Carl Masek and Jerry Beck, they've got this uh, little little distributor. Um, called streamline and um, they've got their own little art gallery as well and they're, they're trying to sell acura um and uh, fist of the north star and a few other titles like that on the uh, on the american market and one of the troubles they're running into is video pirates the place is full of video pirates and acura is one of the most pirated vhs cassettes uh in in the 1980s so they tried to find a way of making it a more unique fan-friendly product and um in the interest of marketing, Jerry Beck went to the Japanese and asked them if there were any cells kicking around from the film itself. Um, because he had this art, this art gallery, so he figured we could mount a few of the cells, frame them, sell them, whatever. Anyway, unbeknownst to him, in Japan, the, the, materials, the raw materials of making um, a cartoon are industrial waste. As far as the Japanese of the time were concerned, this massive container, this you know shipping container, full of old cell artwork and old sketches, was uh, industrial waste that was too expensive to get rid of. And then these Americans turned up and offered to buy it off them. So they were very excited about this, and they, they sold it to them for a few thousand bucks, and it was shipped away to them. And when, when it turned up, they realized just how much material they had. So they started offering the 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 video of acura for sale with an original cell from the film and this i think today doesn't sound particularly weird but it was hugely innovative at the time um and so uh This policy didn't necessarily work. Some comic stores, because Streamline were distributed for a lot of comic stores, just took the cells that they were sent and mounted them and sold them anyway as art in their own right. Didn't give them away free. Some of them were lost. Some of them were stolen. Some of them had been retained by the Japanese creators um, and never made it out of Japan. Um, A huge number of them were in the hands of a collector whose house fell down during uh, an earthquake in Los Angeles um, and were destroyed. Um, uh, but a number, but there are certain collectors dotted around the world who have large chunks of the film in its original raw state uh, because this was uh, a film where the raw materials did actually leave Japan. They weren't destroyed. They weren't washed in acid or burned or, in one famous case, dumped into landfill in someone's studio and then covered up with earth, hoping no one would notice. Um, so um, that's an, another part of Akira's legacy is that the raw materials that made it also made it out into the market for people to appreciate as art in their own right.
2: You're this fan of anime, though you don't know that you're a fan of anime when you're growing up. You step into Japanese culture, studying it. What is that confluence of events, though, that brings those two things together? And you say, I'm going to write about this and make this kind of my business for a lot of years.
5: I had no intention of staying in the anime business. I very much enjoyed being able to combine my day job or my my, my studies of learning Japanese with, with being able to watch science fiction films and call it work. Um, I did eventually write my doctorate about the history of Japanese animation. Uh, so, you know, it's a fantastic way of, of, uh, of getting to you know do your hobby and be paid for it. When I began translating, I thought I'll stay in England for as long as that there's, there's money in this and then when it's all gone I'll go back to Japan and get a real job or something um, and that never happened you know I' it's, it's been 25 years and I'm still still working away it I've just been working on uh, the ADR script for an anime called a silent voice which is a beautiful film about um, a, a deaf girl who's bullied at a Japanese school um, and I, I still love it I still enjoy it getting my hands dirty with the verbs and trying to work out where the nouns should go and trying to work out the way that to take someone's creative work in Japanese and to make it work in English. Um, my trademark, which, which people can often spot my work, even if I'm not credited, my trademark is rhyming subtitles. If there's a song, the subtitles rhyme. And that's normally, that's normally a clue that it's, it's, it's my work, but I still do it, still love it. And I'm, I'm you know, it, it's a, uh, a fantastic opportunity real blind luck i mean if i'd have been if i'd have started my studies a year earlier then the big thing would have been airports honestly i would have ended up becoming a real airport nerd because all the big all the big airports in czech lapgok in hong kong and uh, kansai in japan were being built and i would have been so excited about that and i would have ended up you know wearing a hard hat and and, uh, telling people where to put things on a crane i think so it, it's a real uh, a matter of, of temporal luck, I think.
2: Well, what was that moment, though, that you said, I'm going to now study anime rather than just being a casual fan? Who happens to be learning Japanese and Japanese studies?
5: I think Akira had a lot to do with it. Um... Because there, there were a bunch of things going on at the time. I, I, I bought a few manga in translation before I went to Japan. Um, I was the odd kid in the class who wasn't into martial arts, but who was reading these Japanese comics. Um, but I think sitting in the cinema and watching Acura, it was very plain to me that this was something big and this was something special. And there was going to be more of this. Um and uh, and that was fascinating for me i mean the the idea that there would be more of it is actually something is is quite misleading i mean all the investors in the in the english language market were saying great this is what japanese animation is and they were completely wrong of course because Acura was something of a of a wild card um and there was this desperate scrabble in the uh the foreign language anime business to try and find the next Acura. um and in fact the only way they could make that happen was to literally make it happen was to invest themselves in ghost in the shell in 1995 Uh, which was paid for with 30 percent foreign money because you had the companies abroad going, well, you know, we we need another Acura and there isn't another Acura. What are we going to do? We'll have to make one. But I I, I, and that's, that's that's the thing with Acura, I think, for investors and for fans and for members of the general public, it is unrepresentative of the Japanese industry it's, it's unrepresentative of Japanese science fiction. It's unrepresentative of, uh, of what the anime business normally does, but that's what makes it so great. Um, and it's, it's an incredibly impressive work. And, uh, we talk in the, in the foreign anime business about the Acura barrier, which is that if you wanted to create an anime market in a territory, um, in the 1990s, you would lead with Acura and all the newspapers would go mental and they would write about how great Japanese animation was and then you'd start to lead with your other titles because you'd lured the fans in with this kind of gateway drug. Ten years later, of course, it would be Studio Ghibli. You'd lead with Princess Mononoke or, or, uh, or My Neighbor Totoro or something. Um, but uh, Acura was an incredibly valued commodity for creating the, uh, this kind of new wave of, of, of anime fans if that makes sense.
2: Well, why was Acura Acura? Why were you able to see it in that BFI cinema rather than you know just catching it on a VHS release that you had to import from
5: Japan? There have been a number of factors that came together to make Acura special. One of them, as I said, was it being picked up by foreign distributors in the first place because there was this sudden wave in the 1980s of quality films. But also the creator, Katsuhiro Otomo, had made a name for himself in Japan. Uh, Dolmu had won a prominent award, which was the the manga that he wrote before Akira. So um, Katsuhiro Otomo and uh, Masamune Shiro, his his great rival uh, who wrote Ghost in the Shell, were were getting this name for themselves as comics creators who were winning literary awards. Um, So this had created an interesting... Um, you know, upswell of interest. I think also, and this is where I start to sound really nerdy. Uh, in terms of the history of the film business, we were reaching a point in the film world where I think distributors and fans had started to understand that there were entire niches that you could serve with video that bypassed film. I mean, I talk about *Acura* as a film because it did exist on 35 millimeter film prints, but a lot of its impact and a lot of its its long term value was as a work on vhs where you could actually you know send it to mom and pop video stores or send it to comic stores and it could you know and teenagers could watch it in their bedroom and you were bypassing um a lot of the the mainstream of um a lot of the mainstream media and so that's one of the things that made acura so so powerful and enduring the product the other thing is is that because so much money was spent on it because it was made on film because it was beautifully put together when dvd came along it was an ideal a material to switch to dvd and the same with blu-ray as well every time there's a change in format um, anime gets a great boost because a lot of it is um very well suited to these kind of high resolution products um and also anime fans tend to be early adopters so, you know, if, you're, if it's the, the person who buys a Blu-ray player is the person who's going to be looking for the Blu-ray version of Acura as well.
2: I haven't read the manga of this, so I'm curious how much of that gets translated into the film and what gets left to the side.
5: There is a lot of the manga in the film, um, particularly the early volumes. There are kind of side stories and tangents that have been dropped ...from the film or only glimpsed for a couple of seconds. Certain characters, for example, like Lady Miyako, are only glimpsed for a moment in in the film version. Um, But it's important to remember that the film was made kind of during a hiatus in the manga. And in fact, Otomo hadn't finished the manga when he was working on the film. And so the film's ending is somewhat different from that of the manga. Arguably, you could say the manga goes on for another two films worth of material after the film ends... Although the final shot of Acura pretty much encapsulates a lot of what happens in the manga, um, I think the, the most crucial issues I think for the for the thinking uh, film viewer is that um, after the kind of big apocalypse in the film, the manga continues with this kind of Balkanized post-apocalyptic um, Japan, which is then invaded by the United Nations and the United States, and. The, and the biker gang uh, end up proclaiming themselves the new, uh, the new Tokyo Empire and kind of fighting them off, um, and, uh, which is kind of an, an odd sort of coda to the whole thing. I love the ending of the film, um, uh, where, you know, whereby Tetsuo finally gets what he wants by being the center of everything because he's created his own universe. And <laughs> he's just kind of floating in space proclaiming his name. Uh, and then, and, and the camera kind of rolls on and you realize that you're going past entire galaxies. Uh, um, and it's, it's just, it's just lovely because, you know, what a character arc for someone to go through from being like number two in a crappy biker gang to creating his own universe. It's a pretty good learning curve, really. Um, so that's, that's very impressive for me. Um, something as a first time viewer, uh, that I would be interested in hearing from you is, is who you think the protagonist is because, well, or very famously said, this is a film, this is a story that's been designed so you can decide yourself who it's about. If you want it to be an espionage drama about the revolutionaries, you can do that. If you want it to be a political drama about Nezu's machinations, you can do that. If you want it to be a military techno thriller about this secret weapons project, you can do that. If you want it to be about a, biker, a bunch of biker gangs who do a bunch of... Um, Bunch of bikers who discover this kind of magic widget that gives them all superpowers. It can be about that, because for Otomo, uh, so much of what makes Akira what it is 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 about what it felt like for him to grow up in Japan in the sixties and seventies. Because you see this uh, society that's recovering from a terrible war, that's built itself up very fast, um, but still has these kind of black scars at its heart. Still has these forgotten military secrets that are coming back to haunt it. So you have these riots in the streets, which which may not seem very Japanese today, but in fact, in the sixties and seventies, were incredibly evocative of the Anpo riots over these big um, protests about the renewal of the peace treaty with America that allowed the Americans to maintain their bases on Japanese soil. Um, so 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 much of about Accurate is about what it feels like to be this kind of baby boomer kid in Japan. And most noticeably, uh, for me, I think, is this concept in Japanese science fiction from the 1970s of the new breed, the Shinjin Rui, as they were called. And the idea behind this was that after the war, um, American food aid completely transformed the Japanese diet. The Japanese started eating more wheat, but they also started getting hamburgers, and they also started you know, getting more protein. And suddenly, you got this generation that was growing up taller than their parents, noticeably taller than their parents bigger than their parents they weighed more and they spoke a different kind of japanese because they were growing up reading american fiction in translation and when you translate english into japanese it retains the bluntness of, of, of english now you get people like hemingway who are proud of how blunt they are and in japanese there are all these circumlocutions and you carefully try and obliquely state to steer people towards what you might want and hemingway just says what he wants and so you get an entire generation who grow up so different from their parents that they are described in the Japanese media as if they are a new species. And in the science fiction of the 1970s, which is a touchstone for, for Autumn, you get people saying, well, what if they've also got different minds? What if they're developing these you know, special powers? And so, and so that is you know, tied up, I think, in Acura quite beautifully. Um, it's, it pretends to be a film of the future. It pretends to be a film about 2019, famously the year in which Blade Runner was set. But so much of it is tied to what it felt like for Otomo, for a man born in the 1950s, to see the transformations his country was um, undergoing um, during his college days.
2: The strangest thing to me is that everybody seems so nervous about the Olympics coming to Japan. That was the one thing where it's just like, that's the big thing. That's why... All of this stuff seems to be coming to a crisis that we have to make sure that everything is okay before the Olympics happens
5: hmm I, I don't remember that from from the film um, it's, it's interesting that that should be what you take away from it I do remember it being a kind of joke that the Olympics would be in Japan in 2020, which of course it now will be um, uh, but uh, the, the 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 political crisis in the background of Acura is, is something that looks different to me every time I watch the film I don't think of it as being about the Olympics. I, and certainly the, the 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 area of bomb damage is where the Olympic Stadium is being built so there's this kind of crisis of renewal and they they're and they're, they're, going to, they're going to fix up the terrible old part of town and, 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 and make it whole again um, uh, but uh, you know when, when I see that huge crater at the beginning of, of Acura the thing it calls to mind for me is is Akira Kurosawa is uh is drunken angel which is set in tokyo just after the war and there's this huge cesspit in the middle of tokyo that everyone has to kind of um navigate around and this kind of this kind of horrible secret in the in the past that they're trying to avoid um, so, so there's all kinds of fun to be had with Acura and sort of the depth of it. And I think the Olympic resonances are going to get bigger and bigger over the next couple of years because, of course, 2019 will be in the year that Acura was set. Hopefully there'll be a new collector's edition then that has some decent collectibles. And and then 2020, the Olympics will be in Tokyo. So hopefully the whole place won't blow up.
2: Was there ever a uh, discussion of an Acura sequel?
5: Not to my knowledge. Um, uh, I know that Otomo certainly finished Acura partway through the manga and it's theoretically possible to just continue rolling with elements of the story that were yet untold and to do another film set in Tokyo after Tetsuo's disappearance and Acura's disappearance. And, the, but it would be, it would be, as I kind of mentioned before, it would be a kind of a coda. It wouldn't really be about Acura anymore. Um, Otomo wasn't bothered about that in his original plan for the film. He didn't want to show Acura at all. He wanted, the whole th- he wanted Acura to be a MacGuffin that nobody ever found, um, and he was persuaded that there had to be someone called Acura in the film, otherwise there'd be riots. But I think the other thing to remember with Acura is that in the eyes of its makers at the time, it was this awful white elephant they couldn't get rid of. Um, it ran quite far over budget. It was impossible for it to make back its money in the home market. Um, it did eventually make its money back as with many films then and since it went into the red as a kind of a loss leader against video sales, which is the way the Japanese film market works now. And certainly the way that the market works all over the world. Now it's quite common, you know Um, also the idea that a film would monetize abroad um, is entirely familiar to us. I mean, something like Pacific Rim, which would be regarded as a failure if you only looked at the American market, but in fact has been, you know, a, a sequel has been greenlit because of all the Chinese money that's been poured into ticket sales at the time. However, it seemed unlikely that Otomo would ever work in the animation business again. The next film that had his name on it was Rojin Z, which is about a robot bed and care for the elderly. Uh, but he only wrote the script for that. It was a long while before Memories was released, and Memories was an anthology film uh, in which Otomo's section ran over budget and time. It was another generation before steamboy was released which was his next film as uh as writer and director and 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 steamboy wasn't such a, as big a success as acura so i think acura was lightning in a bottle um and the economic conditions that made acura possible had already dissipated by the time the film was released i'm i'm sure Otomo was approached by the likes of manga entertainment and asked to make a sequel to Acura, but. He had he he, there was no way that that money would be available to him again. um, It took him a long while to kind of build up that kind of respect again. uh, It took a long, a long while for his investors to admit that he'd given them a work which had such long and enduring blue chip value. Uh, I don't think anyone would argue that Acura is a great film anymore. I mean, we all know it's a great film. We all know it's a fantastic success, and it's it's made a lot of money for a lot of distributors around the world. But in 1988, when it was released, I think everyone was terrified that they were all going to lose their shirts. Um, And so that was a contributing factor to there not being a sequel, I think. Also, looking at Altamore and the way that he works and the way that he thinks, he doesn't strike me as a sequel kind of guy. He strikes me as a guy who does something and then moves on. Um, and, you know, a lot of his work um, since uh, has been the way it was before Acura. Although we talk about him as a comics artist and we talk about him as, a, as, an, as an animator, he's not typical of the animation business. He's done relatively few works in the animation business. What he's really known for is advertising. Now,
2: you're about eight months older than I am. So we grew up in the same time era, obviously different backgrounds as far as where we grew up. When I remember Kimba and Speed Racer, it just seems like it's really cheap looking. Indeed,
5: because Japanese animation in the 1960s underwent this real sea change with the arrival of television. In the 1950s, Japanese animation tried to copy what Disney was doing. Um, And then in the 1960s, Osamu Tezuka, the creator of Astro Boy, turns up and he's desperately trying to make animation work on television. And so what he does is he says, what we normally do with full animation is we change the image 12 times per second. So you have 24 frames of film and what's called full animation changes that 12 times a second. That's called uh, animating on twos. It's possible to go very, very uh, detailed and to animate on ones to change it 24 times a second, but a lot, uh, but most cell works, even Disney works on twos and uh so something like snow white for example is mainly shot on twos there'll be moments of incredible detail and incredible animation where it will go on ones and the the image will change 24 times a second but most of the time in most kinds of film changing it 12 times a second is enough tezuka said let's do it on threes let's change the image eight times a second because that's going to save us 30 percent of our budget right away and uh and he introduced a number of massive changes to the working practices um he he also said let's have an image bank he said um we'll get an image of astro boy flying and astro boy striking a pose and astro boy you know walking and we'll save that image we don't throw it away so we'll build up an image bank of reusable images if you were really going to make a tv animation show using full animation you would probably need eight or nine thousand cells to fill a 22 minute tv episode and there are episodes of Astro Boy that managed it with 1,500 cells. So there's this incredible space-saving um, and money-saving um, technique used to make this, what, what's called limited animation. And uh, Japanese animation made for television um, in the 1960s and then in the 1970s, which includes, I mean, I think what you call Kimba was Jungle uh, of No Taite, which was made, I think, in 1966, I want to say. Um And then Speed Racer was uh, a few years after that. But either way, we're dealing with very limited animation. A lot of the time, no one cared. I mean, the trouble with the children's market is is people often don't care. And and, and the kids often don't care either. Um, And you get this kind of... uh, People have written whole books about the kind of mindset that you that you kind of develop if you grow up watching these kind of cartoons. That you start to fill in the blanks yourself. Tezuka himself argued that you know kids don't need full animation. That the art of animation itself is about leaving stuff out and leaving stuff open to the imagination. Um, but it also encouraged certain kind of styles of storytelling. By the late sixties, in particular there was this kind of hyper-reality that started to be introduced into Japanese animation. These sudden zooms, these these cutaways, um, these still frames, uh, something which The Matrix very famously copied to make bullet time was originally invented in Japanese animation to just save money by having people stand still for a bit. Um, You get these kind of stylistic changes brought about by the financial restrictions. While that is a viable way of making... Um, television animation, a lot of Japanese animators hated it. Katsuhiro Otomo himself um, had a miserable time when he was a young artist working on a film called Harmageddon. He hated it. He felt he was being artistically compromised. He felt he was being overworked. He felt no one was able to tell artistically the story they wanted to tell. And so he said, If I'm ever famous and someone ever buys one of my comics, when I make it, I'm going to do it properly and I'm going to tell the story I want to tell. And what you get with Acura very often is animators who've been, who've had to suppress their talents for 10, 15 years are suddenly being told you can do what you like. We've got the money. Don't worry about the producers. I'll handle them. If you want to have lens flares, if you want to shoot at night, if you want to do a 360 degree panoramic pan around a character, you know, standing in the city, we we're going to do that and no one's going to stop us. And so a lot of what you get with Acura is animators really flipping the finger to the people who've been restricting them all this time. I mean, uh, one of the golden rules of cell animation is don't shoot at night. Don't do night sequences because you have to bleed all the colors down and you have multiple light sources and you have neon and you have uh, um, you know, uh, lens flares. And most of Acura takes place at night. Um, and this this causes incredible problems with cell animation because if there's if there's the slightest imperfection in the cell, you'll get shadows turning up on the on the image, and you'll get halation effects where light kind of bleeds into the image. It makes life really difficult for people, but they've deliberately done that with Acura because they are really trying to do I think what we would call an apprentice piece, you know, to really demonstrate what they can do when they're allowed to. And of course, as a result, it ran way over budget. And um, despite critical acclaim in Japan, it only made back three quarters of its budget in the domestic market. It had to be successful abroad in order to go into profit.
2: Do I remember correctly, were there 70 millimeter prints of that movie?
5: I believe there were 70 millimeter prints, but I think they were they were scaled up from 35. I don't think I don't think it wasn't made on 70 millimeter. To my knowledge, um, if if Wikipedia disagrees with me, you have to cut that out. Certainly, um, Acura was made using um, substantially larger cells than, than people are used to. You know, the the idea of, of of most cells is that they are the shape of a television screen and you draw your image on the cell and then you photograph it. However, if you're doing something like a, a long walking shot, when the camera is tracking along next like to someone who's walking, you might have a cell that is much more rectangular and longer, and you'll move that cell slowly along, so the wall that they're walking in front of will, will move with them. And Acura took this to ludicrous extremes. They were huge, kind of oddly shaped cells to allow the camera to, to go down and along and pan in and zoom out and all kinds of weird stuff. Um, and in fact, uh, there's one shot in Acura that has nine different planes of movement. In the same cell, so there's an incredible amount of material going on. I mean, depending on who you ask, there were either 160,000 or 170,000 or 172,000 cells used in the making of Acura. Um, I find all of these numbers very untrustworthy because I think at least one of them was someone just counting the number of minutes and multiplying it by 24 frames. And 60 seconds and saying, well, if it was full animation, then that's how long it must have been. Certainly, if you have that number of cells, then it implies that Acura was was animated on ones, um, largely on ones, 24 changes of image per second. However, you can tell that there are large parts of Acura that are perfectly reasonably animated on twos. So where do all these extra cells come from? Well, it's because it's not just the case of the number of times the image changes in the foreground. It's the image in the background. It's the image in the midground. And so there are these incredible paintings of the cityscape of Tokyo that you only glimpse between buildings because there'll be three or four planes of movement. We know that there'll be a, a motorcycle driving along and you don't just have a single background with the buildings moving. You'll have several planes so that you get this sense of parallax. So the buildings slightly nearer move slower than the buildings behind. Um, but to do that, you need multiple cells. And, and that makes you know, for an incredibly fiddly process for photographing the animation. But, of course, it means that every extra cell you add is increasing the workload, which you see for a single second um sometimes with with japanese animation you see people uh expend their efforts in a more reasonable way they'll say okay well we're going to have a beautiful sky because we know that sky is going to be visible for 20 seconds so we'll we'll, we'll spend some time and we'll make a nice sky You, you see a lot of this with studio ghibli what a beautiful lovely cloudy sky that is and it's on, on, on screen for ages. There are moments in Acura where someone's put the same kind of effort into an image, but you only see part of it, and you only see it for a couple of seconds. So there's this incredible attention to detail which makes every frame um, you know, fun to play with because you, you can just see how much effort's gone into it. The making of documentary for Acura, which is rather misleading, um, makes this big deal about how they recorded the audio before they re- um, made the animation. That's not really strictly true um they use something called a a quick action recorder where they they make a, a a rough kind of scratch video based on the storyboards and they sync to that um but what this meant is is that when they were making the animation for acura they did have a relatively complete audio track um and they made the the mouths fit what people were saying so you know, even, even the movement of people's lips in Acura is um, an order of magnitude above what you would see in television animation. Um, it, it's just you know, one of the many things that the artist would do to show off. In television animation, um, the, 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 the standard rule would be you just use three mouth positions and you don't bother with anything unless it's a moment of high drama uh yoshiyuki tomino the director of gundam he says if it's high drama we will ramp up the cell count and we will have lip movements that really fit because we want to kind of send this subliminal message that this is important and this is this is crucial but most of the time uh it is as you say You know, the background will move but someone will stand still and they'll call that walking
2: god i i don't want to get into the minutiae but i have to ask this question because i think about a film like aladdin Robin Williams had to have recorded his voice before they anim- animated to it. So you're saying that in some of these Japanese animations that they are doing the animation before they record the voice?
5: The pre-recording, uh, which, is what, which is what Disney do, um, or uh, there's actually several kinds of, of, of recording audio for animation. What, what Disney and Pixar do is now is a form of recording uh, which the Japanese call mitereko, watching recording. Which is where they don't just record the audio beforehand, they will video the actors in the booth. So when you see Robin Williams playing the genie in in Aladdin, the animators have got footage of Robin Williams to work with. Elements of his personality will come through in the animation, not just in his voice, but in the way that he moves and the expressions that he makes. And and so mitereko is is the highest level of recording uh, for audio. Pre-recording, pre-reko in Japanese, um, is is uh, is what was was what was used for Acura, which is where big chunks of the uh, of the storyboards were were put into a quick action recorder, and then that was used to uh, to give a guide track to the actors. So the thing is with with animation is is that animation is a long process from from a man sitting in a room with a pencil to the finished outcome and pre-recording is where you record the audio before the cells have been laid down i mean the animation process is underway but you're still only dealing with the storyboards so technically yes it's true to say you know you record the audio before the, the animation is made um, if you want if you want to get technical about it the animation is in the middle of being made and there's something called record as well after recording uh, which is where the animation the, the, the audio is recorded after the animation has been done and once again I really don't like this this kind of terminology because um, it's often uh, very similar to pre-recording in that they're probably um, syncing to pictures and the pictures they're syncing to are storyboards. But, uh, they're called after recording sessions and they're often when the press is invited to, uh, an anime show. And it's often when all of the cast are present. Um, so, which, which makes it easier to do interviews, uh, and they do, and they do the crowd scenes and so on. However, I've seen things described as after recording sessions where actually they're pre-recording because they're using story. So it, it's, it's a complicated issue, and 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 the problem is is that because animation is such a long process, it's unwise to say the audio is recorded before the animation is done, because often these things are being done in in parallel. However, of course, the earlier the audio is recorded, the more the animators have the opportunity to sync what they do to the sound of the audio. So, I mean, I've, I've translated a lot of anime scripts, and uh, even for television, as a lot of anime scripts have blank spaces that just say ad lib and it's left to the actors to come up with something and when i'm translating for english dubbing i either translate what the japanese actors said or i write my own jokes that fit the kind of the mood of the scene where the ad libbing should go because it's difficult to to say to uh um, english-speaking actors on the clock now you have to do something in character here um So uh, there's a lot of ad-libs in in Japanese animation. And, of course, if someone ad-libs and they make some kind of funny noise or do some kind of sight gag, it's very important that that exists on the audio before the animation is made. Um, So, yeah, it's a process, and it comes within the process. The Acura making of video made a huge deal out of recording using a QAR, using a quick action recorder. And they even suggested that the quick action recorder was invented for Acura, which is not true at all. It had already been in use in the animation business in Japan for several years, and Acura was not the first film to do that. But I think it was the film that made the, uh, the, the took the best advantage from, from that process.
2: When you are working on translation for dubbing of uh, animation, what are some of the challenges when it comes to translating for the- from the Japanese to English. I mean, you talked about the way that our mouths move more than the three positions. Do you have to add in extra syllables, or, or what are some of those challenges?
5: Well, in terms of lip syncing, uh, you have to work with the, the, the flaps that you have. Uh, as, as they say in America. In, in America, they call it fitting the flaps uh, how many lip flaps do you have, and, and you try and and fit the the way that people speak so that it it's not there isn't any sense of cognitive dissonance when you see people talking. Sometimes that's not possible, um, uh, and and you really have to to go with it. The film I've been working on recently, sign and voice, uh, is a huge problem because people are using sign language when they're speaking, sign language for the deaf. Um, and the trouble is with sign language is that sometimes it is. Uh, completely intuitive even if you don't speak japanese you can understand what a sign means you know if someone is pointing at their ear and they mean i'm listening or someone is pointing at their eyes and they mean i'm looking so when someone is talking and signing as they speak you have to put that piece of semantic code in the same place where they're talking and the trouble is with japanese is the verb comes at the end of the sentence So you have these incredible, so uh, in humor in particular, when you're telling jokes, it's very difficult because sometimes the meaning of a joke depends on whether or not a verb is positive or negative, like saying not at the end of something. Um, And uh, but in in English, the verb normally comes in the middle of the sentence. So so sometimes you have to work around that. The other problem, the really huge problem um, is swearing, because in Japanese you can be viciously insulting to someone um, just by the verb form that you use and uh, even in the way that you address them um i mean the, the word that normally is translated as you in japanese anata is actually so intimate that when a wife says it to a husband it's normally translated as darling and yeah this is the word that a japanese phrasebook will tell you means you uh when you want to say to the postman you know can you give me that letter in, Japan, in japanese you're calling him darling um and so so, so that that can be a, a huge problem. You can you can really be insulting to somebody um, without uh, um, any need to to add Anglo-Saxon to what you're saying, and so the translator has to make a choice. Uh, and this was a huge deal in the 1990s in the translation business, uh, and the the uh, and the main players were ADV Films in um, America and uh, Manga Entertainment and Kiseki in Britain, where. A decision was made at a, at a production level that if we're going to translate this so it looks like a James Cameron film, I mean, because we, we're trying to be the Aliens market, we're trying to be the Terminator market, but we're trying to do it with with Japanese animation, then we should also use the kind of dialogue that you would see in in, a, uh, in say RoboCop or, or or Aliens. Therefore, we can swear, uh, and so you start to add swearing uh, to the soundtrack and. Uh, uh, Okay, so to give an example from my career. There are two versions in existence of Sol Bianca, uh, which is a, a space opera. Uh, the American version has lots, lots of swearing and lots of very funny uh, slang, uh, and the English version, which I I did, uh, doesn't have any. Uh, and, and the reason is, is that I saw the American version, which was by ADV Films, and all of the so, so much of the slang was sexualized in some way. And uh, Sol Bianca was an anime about an all-female crew. Of the spaceship, and so and, and the idea was is that they were all women who were strong and empowered women getting on with the job, and making jokes about each other's weight and each other's boobs and uh, and that and that kind of thing was I think detrimental to the effects that the original writer was trying to achieve. So I deliberately left that kind of material out of the English version, but uh, f- for others there would be what's known now as fifteening. Uh, this is a British term because. If you had an anime and it was going to get a PG or a 12, if you said a few F-bombs in the middle of your dub, maybe the certification body would give you a 15 rating instead. And then all the teenagers who wanted something edgy to entertain themselves might be more likely to buy your show. So uh, there was this kind of vogue in the 1990s for adding as much swearing as possible. It wasn't just in in Japanese animation. The, The most famous incident in Britain was actually Mrs. Doubtfire, where they added an F word uh, to the dub, uh, they actually added an F word to the soundtrack in, in, in the British release to try and get it the rating increased. Um, so it's, it looked like a more of an adult film than it was. Um, so, so this is this is a, a, an occasional an occasional issue. It's, it's not such a big issue now because anime fans today are so much more picky and also so much more informed about the original that it, it's more difficult to get away with that. Um, but but anyway, as a translator, that, that is a, a big issue to deal with, is, is when to swear. Because I love swearing. I'm having so much trouble not swearing at you right now because I swear all the time like a sailor when I speak. It, it, it only works when it's used sparingly. Uh, and the trouble in Japanese is that uh, it's, it's not true, as Ian Fleming once said, that Japanese has no swear words. But once you start using swear words in Japanese, there's, there's such a huge level of nuance available before you get to the actual swearing. Um, that it, it can be difficult for a for a translator to deal with. So so those are all the kind of things that a translator has to juggle when they're working with Japanese animation. In the case of Acura, um, the most difficult thing... Well, okay, for, for Acura, I didn't work on Acura because I was too young, but the translators who did work on Acura, and there are several different versions of the script, there are, I think, two or three different versions subtitled and two different dubs. Uh, there are two problems. One of them is explaining science fictional terminology because that's, you know you're making up stuff about dilithium crystals and hoping it makes sense and in fact there's one version of the subtitles of Acura which kind of blow the whole point of the story because it's not made really clear um, you know, where Acura's force comes from uh, and the other problem with Acura or oh, not problem, a fascinating linguistic issue is that Katsuhiro Otomo works with um, the underclass I mean he, he tells these, these these science fiction stories but he tells them from a very working class or even underclass point of view. His characters, his leading characters are not middle class professors and university graduates and, and businessmen. You know, they're, they're biker gangs and orphans and, um, and tramps. And, and so they speak this incredibly rough Tokyo dialect um, using particles like ze and zo, which you do not learn in the classroom and i remember when i was 19 i brought a copy of Acura, which i got from the the british film institute and i showed it um at university of leeds just as a kind of special occasion for the for the japanese students and uh, one of my professors stuck her head around the door while it was going on and it was it was the early scene where tetsuo just crashed his bike and uh, canada gets off his bike and comes over to him and asks him how he is and they said we've got to get out of here the clowns are coming and she listened for about a minute and then she said, I do not understand a word that they're saying. She's really worried because she, she, she's a professional with three degrees who specializes in Japanese. You would hope that she could get it. But the argot of the, uh, of the, the characters are using in Acura, the, the biker boys in particular, is this just patois that is nothing like anything you ever see in a Japanese textbook. And it's a very bad way of learning Japanese. Uh, after Acura and during the 1990s and the early noughties in particular, you'd run into a lot of anime fans who tried to learn Japanese from watching anime, uh, which causes all kinds of problems because they can say, throw me the laser gun before the reactor explodes, um, you asshole. Um, But not, you know, uh, they can't actually greet you in a, in a way that would um, avoid getting a slap in the face from a, from a non-Japanese girl. So, so those are all the kind of problems that you get from Japanese animation.
2: You mentioned briefly that there was a cut-down version of Acura that came out. What were some of the differences between that and what we see today? Because I imagine that if you go out and you buy it on DVD or Blu-ray now, you're going to see the full version.
5: I didn't say that it was cut-down. There are different translations available of Acura. Uh, that's the real issue. Um, the uh, There's at least... I know there are two dubs there's the original there's the original streamlined dub and then there is the Genion dub because the issue with Acura is that uh, very smartly um, Pioneer um, which then became Genion decided when uh, when uh, in the middle of the DVD era that Acura deserved to be preserved uh, whereas if you see a film print of Acura now, there's scratches all over the film and, uh, you know, it breaks every now and then and uh, there's discoloration. Um, around about, I think it was around about 1999, um, Pioneer Genion um, spent a substantial amount of money cleaning it up. I mean, they, they spent almost as much as the film cost of making in the first place um, doing a fully remastered, recolored um, digital film print of the film and so there is a line of division in in acura between versions released in the 20th century and versions released in the 21st century when you buy a 21st century version of acura you are buying a beautifully restored print with a restored soundtrack with a with a 5.1 mix and a um and a new dub but there's also uh to my mind there's a superior translation as well which was released in Britain, it was shown on television and on Channel 4, and for some reason they retranslated it, and older Standish from the School of Oriental and African Studies did a new translation, which is actually vastly <laughs> superior to the original Streamline translation. Um, I haven't actually seen um, the remastered version with subtitles, so I couldn't tell you what the, what the qualitative difference is in the subtitles there. But certainly you're seeing a different version every time, and I would certainly advise anyone who is inspired by this to run out and buy Acura, to make sure they're not buying it secondhand, to buy one that's new. Because if you buy it secondhand, you're probably going to buy someone's 1999 version before the remaster.
2: Throughout this conversation, we've been using the term Japanese animation and then anime. Is there actually a difference between Japanese animation and the term
5: anime? Probably. The Japanese themselves have been arguing about this for 40 years. The the term anime in the English-speaking world arose in the early 1990s as a means of, as a, as a shorthand and the kind of marketing term for saying this is Japanese animation, this is animation from Japan. Um, however, the word anime in Japan um, arose during the 1960s, originally to refer to the limited animation that we were talking about. Um, Tezuka once stood up in his studio and gathered all the staff around him and said, listen, everybody, what we are doing is not animation. What we are doing is anime," And he was using a truncated term for the limited animation that he was making um and the thing is, is the term anime was already in existence when tezuka gave it that definition so you then get into this huge discourse-based argument about do you want to listen to tezuka or do you want to listen to people who are just shortening the word animation which you know op- words are often shortened in japanese you know a, a convenience store in japan is a konbini so you know animation in japan is anime it doesn't necessarily mean there's any semantic difference there however in round about 64, Tezuka said, "Yes, there is a semantic difference. It means limited animation." And then, round about 1992, uh, Helen McCarthy and uh, many uh, big-name American fans said, "No, animation, anime means animation from Japan." Uh, and this this term was deliberately pushed by the fandom of the era because Jap animation contains a racist slur, or, 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 or I, it, it, I don't think it was ever intended to, but you might misinterpret it as doing so um and so so some people try to say japanimation was the uh was was a good term for it um i think most modern uh fans would would rather say it's just animation um because we don't want to uh introduce this no- this some kind of specific notion that because it's japanese it's special although of course the fact that it's japanese is exactly what makes it special to me um, so, yes, I do my best to say Japanese animation because I don't like getting bogged down in semantic arguments over terms that are not codified and concrete, even in Japanese. Um, so Anime Gaku, which is the uh, anime studies, it's the um, the textbook for animation studies in, in Japan, um, actually devotes a good 40 pages arguing about what Japanese animation is, or what anime is, because... For example just to muddy the waters Hayao Miyazaki refuses to re- refer to his work as anime as far as Hayao Miyazaki is concerned anime is the junk on television and his films are animation because that's what you know because he's an artist and so when even the japanese are arguing about it and even when you follow the japanese idea which seems to be relative it seems to be gaining ground which is that anime refers to limited animation this is no help at all um, when uh, you're trying to push Japanese animation abroad. You see, if you say, it's anime, and anime means it's not as good as real animation. That's never going to do you any good. But also, the entire notion of limited animation has been entirely mangled and transformed by the advent of digital animation. When you work digitally and you're motion-capturing actors, sometimes you're using 70 frames of motion per second. You can't call that limited animation. And so, can you call it anime or not? Well, let, they've argued about that as well, and I refuse to get involved. But equally, you get a film like 009 Re-Cyborg by Kenji Kamiyama, which was fully digitally animated and used motion capture, but was then processed on threes. It was processed at eight frames per second to make it look like TV animation. So once you start doing that, once you start faking the look of limited animation as a kind of artistic signature, then it becomes very difficult to talk about limited animation. And and I think these kind of arguments, uh, animators get very excited about them and producers get very excited about them because within the argument that we're having here is a budgetary argument. Do you want to pay for animation on ones? Do you want to pay for animation on threes? Um, do you want to pay for digital animation? Do you want to play for nine planes of movement and, you know, glow in the dark neon signs? um, but I think for fans themselves, these arguments are are counterproductive. If you like this movie, you like this movie, and and let's let's be happy with that.
2: Well, what is that fandom like? I mean, I know you had kind of first hand experience with that when you were working for Manga Max magazine. What is that kind of culture of fandom like, and have you seen it transform over the years?
5: It's certainly transformed over the years. I was the editor of Manga Max magazine from nineteen ninety eight to two thousand. And when we began, we were at the tail end of the, of the original boom. So we were dealing with um, teenagers and college-age fans, mainly male, uh, early adopters. Uh, they liked comics um, and uh, relatively educated. Um, and the kind of people who watched dubbed anime um, rather than subbed anime were kind of outside our purview. They weren't really our people. We were talking to people who appreciated the japanese of it all. Um, by the end of my tenure as editor, the letters page had completely transformed. We were getting letters from much younger teenagers, sometimes 13 and 14. Um, they were watching anime dubbed on television. They were Pokemon, Pokemon fans. Um, and uh, they, uh, there was a larger... Number of girls. Um, And then moving on into the noughties, by about 2007, we had gender parity pretty much in the British market. I don't think the American market was far behind. Um, And there are several reasons for this. Uh, There was a greater diversity of content. Um, Also, um, anime and manga had moved out of the comic shops and into bookshops, which were a more welcoming environment for female customers. Um, and this kind of created this rolling recruitment drive for anime fans. Cosplay, costuming, became an incredibly popular thing at animation conventions, and that favoured uh, a lot of female fans who probably weren't into gaming necessarily, but wanted to you know, make themselves look like a ninja princess. Um, and so one thing started to lead to another, and um, so anime fandom today is a radically different, Commodity from from the way it was uh, five years ago and ten years ago and fifteen years ago. It's always transforming. Um, there was a period when anime was a, uh, a what you would call, I suppose, a bros' entertainment, and it was all about guys drinking beer and eating curry and watching horror or. Sexual exploitation films that happened to be from Japan, and then it, and then it became Pokemon, and then it became Studio Ghibli, and suddenly anime means it's Oscar-winning entertainment for all the family. Um, and now it's much more diversified, um, and it's very difficult to put a single you know handle on on Japanese animation. You have you know American conventions are happening every week all over the United States. They're attracting thousands of fans, and there are people who go there just to play games. There are people who go there. Um, for, the, for the costuming, um, what people don't go to conventions for anymore is to watch anime, because the other huge transformation that it's undergone over the last 10 years has been uh, access. You don't even have to go to a video shop anymore. You can watch it on Netflix. You can watch it on, on Amazon. Um, the majority of all anime sales are now online, um, either through streaming, uh, which is the main main resource, or people are even buying their DVDs and Blu-rays online, so it's still a form of online sale. Um, and so your location is no longer uh, is no longer required to be a big city that will support a, a, a weird, esoteric comic shop. You can live on a farm in the middle of nowhere, and anime will still come straight down to your TV screen. And so this vastly increased access and opportunity, and that vastly increased the diversity of fans.
2: As we said before I started recording, um... I am very much a novice when it comes to anime. So I'm curious, after watching Akira, what should I be looking at next? What's the next kind of gateway drug into this world?
5: Oh, well, that really depends what kind of anime you want. Because if you want to stay on a science fictional angle and you want to stay in movies, the the next film after Akira is Ghost in the Shell from 1995. The original Ghost in the Shell.
2: Oh, not the recent one with Scarlett Johansson. Not
5: the Scarlett, not the Scarlett Johansson one. No, that's that's not going to be any use to anyone ever. Um, uh, the uh, the original Ghost in the Shell, by, directed by Mamoru Oshii, written by Kazunori Ito, was uh, a, a deliberate attempt um, by various investors in the anime business to out Acura Acura, and it's a beautiful film, uh, even to this day. And so much of what makes the um, the recent live action film great is its attempts to imitate things that were already in the 1995 original. So don't worry about the live action one, go back and watch the 1995 original. And that introduced you to the work of Mamoru Oshii, um, who's also made some fantastic films uh, since Ghost in the Shell, uh, including Skycrawlers and uh, the Pat Labour movies. Um, A shout out to Satoshi Kon, who died sadly after only having made a handful of films, but he made some beautiful films. Uh, Very much um, made him a much more avant-garde director in the animation business in Japan, um, including Millennium Actress and Perfect Blue um, and uh, Tokyo Godfathers, the ultimate Christmas film about three tramps who find a baby uh, in the middle of Tokyo. It's a cliche, but the works of Studio Ghibli, Hayao Miyazaki, Isao Takahata and the often forgotten uh, Yoshifumi Kondo are um, some of the best animated films ever made. I don't need to push the works of Hayao Miyazaki particularly, but I will point out that Isao Takahata's Grave of the Fireflies is an absolutely heart-rending war movie about the firebombing of Kobe. Um, And uh, Yoshifumi Kondo's only completed work, Whisper of the Heart, is a very sweet film, particularly if you're a translator, because it's about someone who has to translate songs, uh, and they end up doing country roads in Japanese. Uh, but even that list that I've just given you is only the tip of the iceberg because the the thing about the Japanese animation business is it is an entire medium. There is literally something for everybody. Um, And so I might be pointing at rather obvious mainstream touchstones because I don't know you, Mike, so I don't know what your particular interests are uh, in the filmic world. If I knew what your top three favorite films were, maybe I could point you at anime that are more specific to you. For all I know, the, you're, you're going to absolutely love some kind of thing about transforming ponies. Uh, although I doubt it. I doubt it. So should I just jump right to Ninja Scroll or not? Yeah, we'll talk about Ninja Scroll if you like. You, uh, you want to you watch Ninja Scroll, do you?
2: I, I keep hearing about this movie. I don't know anything about
5: it, though. The thing with Ninja Scroll is they were planning on making it for video, straight to video, I think. And then it became really obvious that it was a perfect title to sell abroad. Uh, Yoshiki Kawajiri, the director, really wanted to retell Mission Impossible, but with uh, 17th-century Japanese uh, assassins instead as his leading characters. And there's some lovely work there with uh, with backlighting. Believe it or not, um, where they uh, there's a plague-struck village, and they put light behind the cells, so you get this horrible white sky, this oppressive white sky that pushes light towards the viewer. It's a lovely little uh, thing. Um, but, uh, apart from that, Ninja Scroll is, uh, it's one of the beer and curry era, um, of Japanese animation It's it's of its time. Um, and it's got Ninja in it, which are entirely fictional, but don't get me started on that. How
2: did you manage to start working on titles like Dr. Who and, and Strong Team Dog and, uh, Judge Red and doing these, uh, uh audio dramas?
5: Well, once you are translating scripts, you are working with scripts on, uh, on an intimate basis. And um, I ended up working on a computer game called Halcyon Sun. And, Son, and uh, I was approached by the Strontium Dog people, by Big Finish, and they asked me if I would write, um, if I would pitch to, to do a Strontium Dog uh, audio drama. Um, and I did, and so that got me a Judge Dredd, and eventually they let you loose on Doctor Who, but you have to kind of go through this apprentice doing the smaller franchises first. I wrote a Doctor Who Unbound, that's a Doctor Who, where the guy playing Doctor Who is not one of the canonical Doctor Whos, it was David Warner playing mine, and I called Sympathy for the Devil about the handover of Hong Kong, and that was very well received, uh, because David Tennant was in it before he was Doctor Who, And So that's become a bit of a blue-chip seller for them. And after that, they let me loose on the real Doctor Mm -hmm. Who's. Um, I mean, I was a fiction writer before I was a translator. That's the thing. Um, A lot of the cheapskate outfits in the translation business will hire a translator who can only do half the job, and then they have to hire a rewriter to fix what they've done. But I was actually writing my own fiction before I learned Japanese. So I do my best to bring a kind of talent that I hope someone deserves when their work gets translated um, into English. I mean I think the last the last fiction that I did was the Spartacus novel I think, Swords and Ashes it was called, the, the spin-off from the Star's Spartacus series. That was mine. I'm billed as J.M. Clements, but that is actually Jonathan Clements. There was a desperate attempt to try to associate my fiction work with a different name so that people wouldn't get confused when they bought something about the art of war and then discovered that the same author had written something about Spartacus. But Amazon outed me pretty fast. And what is your connection with Finland? Uh, I married a Finn. I have a Finnish son, and I'm talking to you in Finland right now. Um, so I've been living here for five years or six years now um, I ended up writing a book about the uh, former Finnish president um, Carl Gustav Mannerheim because uh, it turned out he was a spy in the Far East before he uh, became the Finnish president so I was quite fascinated by that and uh, so after I moved to Finland I immediately put my Far Eastern skills to work and unearthing his career um, crossing Asia pretending to be a Swedish anthropologist but actually spying on the Chinese army Um, And Finn's oddly surprised when you mention this. I I would have thought it was uh, an obvious kind of fun point about their president, but a lot of them don't seem to know about it. Um, So I did very well there.
2: I wouldn't know anything about having a president who is a foreign spy, by the way.
5: No, no, no one. No one would uh, dream of suggesting that about anyone's president.
2: So where's the best place for people to keep up with you and all of your
5: projects? I would guess that would be my blog, uh, schoolgirlmilkycrisis.com. Why unearth the schoolgirl milky crisis? I was working for Newtype USA magazine, and I was doing a regular monthly column about the animation business in Japan for a couple of years. I, it fast became apparent that you know Newtype is very deeply ingrained into the Japanese business. It's, it's owned by Katakawa Shoten, who have got their fingers in many pies in Japan. So every time I started libeling somebody or calling out a studio for being um, difficult people – we had to change the name of the show that I was talking about to try and protect the guilty. So we started using a number of made-up anime titles that sounded real but weren't. So Schoolgirl Milky Crisis was one. Pretty Vampire Boy was another. Devil, Devil, Beast, Beast uh, was one of my favorites. And so we had a whole bunch of titles. And But Schoolgirl Milky Crisis seemed to stick. And people started using it in conversation and saying, oh, have you seen Schoolgirl Milky Crisis? It's terrible. So when I did a collection of my articles and and essays and speeches um, about 10 years ago now, um, we decided on a stupid whim to call it Schoolgirl Milky Crisis. Um, And and Steve Kite, the uh, the cover artist, started doing all this artwork, imagining what an anime called Schoolgirl Milky Crisis might look like, which is why there's a girl in a cow costume with machine gun udders um, on the cover of of my book Um, and the blog was started by my publisher Titan uh, to promote the book and they kind of lost interest and wandered off after a while but I've kept the blog and I've kept the the title so now yes it's I'm afraid it's schoolgirlmilkycrisis.com for all of my sensible and intelligent history books
2: Back and we we're talking about Akira. It's so much fun to scream these names, and yeah, they just scream so much, especially at the end when uh, Kaneda and Tetsuo are facing off.
4: Yeah, that last third is just a scream fest. It's it really is wonderful. I, most of the dialogue is just Kaneda Tetsuo. The last twenty minutes, yeah, it's it's really great.
2: No subtitles needed.
4: Right, exactly. Yeah, that part I understood.
2: I'm so glad you guys read the comics of this because. It just, we could have spent a whole hour just talking about the comics, if not a whole day talking about the comics, because they are so rich and there's so much stuff going on in this. And it is really an epic story taking us through the two hour movie that we've seen plus so much
1: more. It's one of those that's. There have been various prints over the years, and it still remains the quintessential manga, in my opinion, just as Akira is the quintessential anime. That's when I have people that are kind of willing to look into things, but may not be as in to the more distinctly Japanese tradition of manga. Some of the things that they'll, they'll throw into there, you can give somebody Akira. And the style and presentation of it are, cl- are is close enough to Western style um, comic books that it reads p- very easily. Uh, add to the fact that the majority of the prints reprints of it that I've seen in English, they actually flipped everything, so you read it uh, in the the Western style of uh, left to right instead of right to left as uh, the Japanese do it.
4: I was uh, I was really surprised that DC they've been. Uh... They've been, uh, reprinting the, uh, Jiro Kuwata uh, bat, bat manga, uh, and they're, they're doing it in the, uh, in, in the original style. Uh, and I, 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 you know, I wonder how many people are confused by that. Just regular people who are Batman fans who may not know very much about, uh, manga are confused by it. Much like I am by, by the way, of the pronunciation of manga. Because <laughs> I always, I always mispronounce it. It's kind of like, um, gyo jiro I'm forever mispronouncing it and feeling like an idiot. So I would like to uh, apologize to all the listeners for my brutalization of the proper pronunciation of that. Just blame it on my Philadelphia
1: accent. That's what I always do. When Japan borrows words from English, they butcher their pronunciation, too. So I think it's only fair.
2: At least I've gotten past trying to uh, say that it's basically the Italian word to eat. I'm not calling it manja anymore, so... Oh, I used to do that, Mike, so yeah. So yeah, I don't know, manga, manga... Uh, and I I uh, I also apologize because I know I'm just brutalizing so much of the the stuff that's here, but you know I, I don't. Hopefully, people aren't uh, hearing this and criticizing us over that kind of stuff. There's so much more that they can criticize us for. Yeah,
4: uh, you were you were saying about the uh, the comics. I forget if it's Dark Horse or IDW. I know it was Dark Horse in the early thousands, but they recently came out again. It's the same translation, just reprinted again. And they uh the the translation there is is supposedly by people who have read the original Japanese as close as we're going to get. Um, so yeah, I, I love those. The, the again, it's like six volumes. Uh, I think, I think it comes to a total of like 2000 pages. Like this is, you're going to be, you're going to, if you're looking for something to read, that's going to be like a fun project for a few weeks, get these volumes because it's definitely worth it. But again, I would say take a break, from, you know, see them do one or the other, either the movie first or the books, and take a little break in between so you don't confuse yourself.
1: Oh, definitely. And w- one thing I, I absolutely love, at least with the manga, how it was printed, that unlike so many others, which are kind of printed in somewhat undersized digest volumes, the Akira volumes are big. They're like big yeah. phone books. And I, I, I love because it's presented in a larger format you can take you can really uh focus in on the detail that Atomo was bringing to it because every once in a while you'll come across a manga uh particularly berserk where the the gentleman who does that who loves doing these incredibly detailed drawings which are really great but when they're presented in a smaller format you're sometimes straining to see the detail you don't have that problem with Akira it's presented very clean and it's just a great little read well, not a little read as you mentioned it's six <laughs> volumes and two thousand pages
4: you can th- you can get through a few volumes in a day if you have if you have like a Saturday where you're not doing anything like you can pick out two three volumes easily I mean because the story is so engaging and just you really get absorbed by this story uh like much like Tetsu's girlfriend at the end of the film, you get completely absorbed into it too soon you get well, absorbed none. entirely into it and uh yeah it's it's really uh, I, I just I feel like I'm repeating myself, but this is one of those things that like this is a movie that was very important to me because it was something that I, I kind of found out about on my own and didn't didn't really have very much familiarity with it beforehand and was just blown away by. It. So to see like this become this major mainstream cult phenomenon that it is, because it is, it is kind of mainstream enough to have had like action figures and all sorts of merchandise, but it's still a cult film. It's it's it it. It's really exciting to me and to know that the, this movie has endured now for almost 30 years. I'm excited to see like what the you know what the plans are for next year when it when it celebrates its 30th anniversary. I think that's going to be, you know, that's going to be a lot of fun.
1: Well, I know one thing they're doing this year to celebrate the 35th anniversary of when the manga started is they're putting out this really gorgeous box set of all the different volumes. And uh, I'm glad I jumped on the uh, the pre-order on that because the price ended up dropping to a very nice uh, $106. So I think it's back up now at $130. Okay. But if you- Hey, but if you want to pick up six volumes of it in what looks to be a beautiful little set, 130 for 2000 2, pages isn't too bad.
4: And I feel like that's that may even be a little bit cheaper than these the paperbacks, you mm-hmm. know, uh cuz I think they went for 30 or 35 each. Uh yeah. yeah. At least when they originally came out. Yeah, that that's not a bad deal at all.
2: A lot of the panels for these are uh wordless. We've got a lot of Images taking us through the story, a lot of, and this is where I'm going to run into some trouble with some real heavy comic book users. I don't necessarily know what you call the, word versions of sounds but there's a lot of those you know obviously snicked bamf those kind of things for x-men fans we see those all the time thwip for spider-man fans but we're seeing a lot of noises being represented via onomatopoeia across these different panels so much so that sometimes i'm just like okay what would that even sound like like chalk what (laughs) but but there's a lot of of just great storytelling great visual storytelling happening here just through the progression of panels so even without dialogue to move us along throughout so much of this it is just such a, a beautiful visual medium that that he is uh using the comic book properly for this
4: Otomo, uh, he is a master of the splash page, too, which is uh, I'm not quite sure what he's been up to in recent years. Uh, you know, it's it's got to be difficult for him to have released something that just struck a chord with so many
2: people. And then how do you follow this up? You know, no, it's, it's got to be like peaking early. I, would yeah.
1: Think. Yeah. I think the last thing that I saw that he had a hand in wasn't even a manga. It was the 2004 film Steamboy. Which, if you ever check that out, um, this, the animation style was comparable to what he was doing with Akira. But I haven't seen anything else that he's done. Oh, actually, you know what? I I saw the uh, live-action Mushishi film, which was not, not as good as the anime. But uh, I didn't realize he directed that.
2: Do you guys think that when uh, – there's an amazing part in the book that isn't in the movie when – or at least I'm pretty sure it's not in the movie. Again, mixing the two up. But I'm pretty sure because this – we have uh, – Uh, akira is a much larger character in the book series and though he doesn't really say anything at all he just kind of sits there like emperor tomato ketchup on his throne and just everyone kowtows to him you know and uh at one point uh tetsuo is showing off his powers and he looks back at uh akira and is like the moon my lord and he breaks part of the moon now some people would say that that's a thundar the barbarian reference i would think that it actually ends up being a little bit of a star wars thing because when he's done with the moon and fucking with the moon it looks like the Death star to me i don't know if that's just me though
4: i could certainly see that that's the assumption i mean too so So, yeah
2: (laughs) the way that the book ends with the whole idea of the u.s involvement in this i mean talk about political the way that the u.s fleet comes in and they have a, a kind of a, a secret agent on japan he and ryu are together through a lot of this very uneasy uh allies through much of it and then the way that the u.s comes to town and the way that uh, Tetsuo takes out the battleship that's out uh, outside of Japan. I mean, yeah, we're really getting into a lot of political stuff because eventually the world that Tetsuo creates is this new Tokyo empire that they call it. And they basically tell the U.S. who comes in and tries to take over after they've dispatched the bad guys, they try to take it over and... Uh, uh, Taneda is having none of it. He's just like, get the fuck out. Uh, This is our empire. You get out now. And, I mean, just bravo, of course, but it's like, okay, yeah, we are really, really political at this point with this.
1: I I do like that aspect of it. I like that through the art we can get a glimpse into the sensibilities and the anxieties of the culture. We may not have the same kind of backing because I know when I, when I see the film, when I read the manga, and when anytime I engage with art from another culture, I'm going to be missing something inherently. I mean, I could read all the books, I can re- reference it, but unless you're part of it, there you'll generally miss a detail. But I like that view of it, if only just to kind of give you a sense of uh, well, as as simple as it sounds, but just what another culture was going through. You know, we have we have our American narrative, and we have our American mythology. Every other country does as well, and o- it seems to be the only way we can kind of get a true sense, or at least a, a a good view of that sort of psychology and that sort of sensibility is through the art.
2: Throughout this entire podcast, I think we've we've tried to look at how other countries will uh will. Create their art and how that reflects the time, space, place that they're in, how it can be viewed now. But really, there are so many things I was going to say uh, about the uh, Czech temper films that we're going to be covering here pretty soon, where it's just to see the way that Czechoslovakia was being so affected by uh Russian involvement and Western involvement and just how their art reflects this horrible place that they were in at the time. But yeah, I mean Japan in nineteen eighty eight in the late eighties, this is definitely very reflective of them. And then also looking forward, and it's it's bizarre to me that you know it's art imitating life or life imitating art in this case. Obviously, we aren't going to have Olympics in 2019 like it's set up in this story, but this whole idea of the Olympics coming to Tokyo, because we actually are going to have the Olympics, as long as Trump doesn't blow up the world, we actually are going to have the Olympics in 2020 in Tokyo. So I'm wondering if they're going to take a small psychic boy and bury him under the stadium just as a tribute to Akira. We
4: can only hope. Akira is uh, wide-reaching enough, so maybe they'll do, like, a little nod in the opening ceremonies like they did when they had uh, – wow, this is a terrible example uh, – when they had men at work at the Australian
1: Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Australia.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. Let us I'm highlight sorry
4: gr- to any Australian and or Japanese listeners right now. I would like to apologize. <laughs>
2: To the entire APAC region is what you're.
1: I will not be telling people my Twitter handle on this episode. So yes. Ah, come on! I'm sure they embrace (laughs) the great uh, cultural gift that is Men at Work. (laughs) I would. I mean, I would.
2: There's so much to talk about. Like I said, when it comes to the book, I really miss the Chiyoko character. This uh, she's amazing. The way that she changes throughout this book, and just that we have such a kick-ass female character who just takes. No shits whatsoever. She just is out there kicking ass. She is equal to or better than the colonel when it comes to kicking ass, and just her story could be a comic unto itself.
4: Yeah, and it's it, it kind of you know the the fact that her story is pretty much is is excised kind of just you know emphasizes again that why if you are a fan of the film you should spend some time to to delve into the comic just to see what you're missing and to see what 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 kind of got cut and yeah they they complement each other very very well and i I don't think that can be emphasized enough that and the fact that like I knew the soundtrack used to be on Spotify uh, I highly recommend listening to that or you can I I got it very cheaply off of Amazon a few years back I'm sure it's probably still in print or you can find it somewhere it's it's well worth your listen it's' It's a pretty great. Like I, I regularly write to the soundtrack. It's it, it. can get you fired up.
2: There's a new vinyl version of it coming out oh soon, which goodness. I know gets some hipsters excited. Yeah, uh, I'm fine with the CD. Thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I
4: I like the I I like the vinyl uh, idea of all these vinyl releases because I'm sure it will be beautiful. Uh, but it will probably also be like forty forty five dollars. If I know yeah. like. Like the thing releases and things like that, yeah.
1: Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Nothing like false <laughs> scarcity to uh,
2: drive that price right up.
1: Yeah. I guess that's not fair. There are there are some labels that I, I, I have to put in this one because I know some people will listen to this and they'll get all indignant. Yes, there are some boutique labels that can't afford to put out a thousands of printing. You still know that they could uh, do more to stop scalpers, though.
2: All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. All right, we'll be back next week with a discussion of Valerian Barovchek's Lamarge. Until then, I want to thank this week's guests. Al Goro and Chris. Al Goro, what is the latest with Talk Without Rhythm, sir?
1: Well, depending on when this episode drops, because I did not look at the schedule, but... uh, Wednesday. Wednesday. Well, I will be reaching the end of my Sci-Fi July, where I've been talking about various Sci-Fi films, mostly focusing upon those that were released uh, in the 21st century, kind of making the case that uh, while you'll always hear a lot of doom and gloom about the state of modern cinema, in the case of Sci-Fi, there has been a lots of really quality releases that have been coming out uh, j- since the turn of the century. Uh, I think the most recent episode, it, we're kind of deviating from that a little bit, but I'll be having another Cleveland podcaster on the show, Paul from The Invasion of the Podcast, and we're going to be taking a look at sci-fi creature features with David Cronenberg's The Fly and uh, James Gunn's Slither. So that should be a fun episode. To, and talk Talk about body horror, right?
2: Now, are we in the post-sci-fi age?
1: Not in my opinion. I mean, there's still quality sci-fi that's uh, st- still coming out. What is interesting is the gap between the technology that we're, sh- we're showing in sci-fi contexts and what's actually available now, it seems to be uh, dramatically shrinking. Because, you know, it used to be, oh, look how, look how futuristic all of this tech is with, you know, laser displays and handheld computers. And we have all of that. The only thing we can do these days to make it look more high tech is to, well, either go a uh, regressive sort of way and kind of get something that looks like Alien or just look like a slightly shinier version of the stuff we have now. So it is kind of fun how uh, science fiction creators are uh, dealing with that sort of thing
2: holograms baby that's where it's at
1: nothing but holograms but we have that too they made a tupac hologram
2: but until you have tom cruise interact with that tupac hologram <laughs> that's true
4: that would be a movie of his i would actually want to see tom
1: cruise and Tupac <laughs> uh, hologram. Sure, I'm...
2: it'd be like that tom cruise from tropic thunder where he's dancing with them and chris what is keeping you safe in neo philadelphia these days
4: uh, I am currently uh, doing some writing for uh, Den of Geek. Uh, I'm hosting uh, – I'm co-hosting Nerd Night Philadelphia once a month. And in uh, in October for uh, New York Comic Con, I'm hosting the official New York Comic Con, New York Comic Con Presents events, the Doctor Who Costume and Trivia Contest which will be on Wednesday, October 4th at the Waystation in Brooklyn. And I'm hosting a uh, comedy music video event called Music Video Book Club on Friday, October 6th at Rock Bar in Manhattan. So come on out and check me out at those events.
2: I can't believe that you're even associating with Doctor Who now that they've sullied the name by having a woman, Doctor Who. How
1: dare they? Poor boys won't have a role model anymore. That's what Peter Davison just said. I know.
4: I couldn't believe when Davidson said that. Please, sir, shut up. I can't believe he said that. Yeah,
1: I just want to go and punch him for that. He is not worthy of his last name.
2: Well, guys, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also be able to leave us all kinds of rude notes about how Mike doesn't know anything about anime and what an a-hole he is and how we all mispronounce things. Though I think, Goro, I think you're pretty safe. You you definitely talk the talk and walk the walk. I, uh, yeah, you were. Well, sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.